Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Uh, I am looking forward to savoring this issue of Who's Who because I know... It is the closest I will ever get to being a guest on the JLI podcast. <laughs> well, you know, it, it is sort of funny. It, it, the, it, the cover is Justice League of America, and yet there's really not a lot of Justice League in this issue. I mean, usually when they do a cover, uh, there's kind of a theme in there. You know, the Hawkworld one had a few Hawkworld entries. This has got pretty much the JLA entry and Oberon. That's about it. So, uh, but yeah, you're, you're right. It is about as close as you're going to get, at least in this decade. So that's... <laughs> So that's why I'm going to savor. I'm going to tease this one out. This is going to be our first six-hour episode. Oh, I'm sure everyone at home is really looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, on that note, let's just jump right into our in-stock trades recommendations so we can get this train moving. Folks, this episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What'd you bring, buddy? Well, based on one of the listings in this issue, I picked Batgirl, a celebration of 50 years hardcover. Uh, of course, this is part of that whole series DC's been doing of these big, nice deluxe editions, reprinting stories featuring their most iconic characters. And I had no idea that they did one of Batgirl. Uh, and that's super cool because I'm a big fan of Batgirl. So that's really neat that she got her own book. I mean, like, you know, I knew they did one of Batman, of course, but I didn't know they did one of Batgirl. The normal price is $39.99. It's 384 pages. The in-stock trades price is $23.19. That is 42% off. And uh, it, it's funny. It lists some of the books that are reprinted here. And Batgirl has had so many series that I don't know what volume they're even talking about. It's like, it's like Batgirl 4, Batgirl 13, Batgirl 8, Batgirl 45, Batgirl 0. I'm like, I have no idea. So it's, it's like Aquaman. Like, I don't know what volume we're talking about. But anyway, it features work by, of course, Gardner Fox, Carmen Infantino, Cameron Stewart, Brendan Fletcher, Babs Tarr, Gail Simone, and much, much more. So Batgirl Celebration of 50 Years. It features a great uh, cover by Marcos Martin. It's beautiful. So really cool book. Pick it up. That's awesome. I, I did not know the book existed as well, but really, if you step back and think about it, DC's not going to miss a trick with a bad book. I mean, come on. So, uh, based on an entry, you think I'd pick a Justice League entry but this time, but you know, I pick one every episode of the JLI podcast. So instead, I picked one based on Shade, the Changing Man. Um, the, the Shade, the Changing Man trades are not in print currently. However, you can pick up Shade the Changing Girl, trade paperback volume one called Earth Girl Made Easy. It's fairly recent. It's part of the um, what do call it, Young Animal line. In fact, I'm reading it myself right now. I picked it up. I'm, uh, I'm about halfway through the trade. It's really interesting. If you read the old Shade series, I think you definitely would enjoy this. All the iconography is there. It's a different character. It's about a young woman who has got his uh, Shade's coat. She's from the meta dimension, all that stuff. We'll talk more about Shade later. But it's uh, it's very connected to the original series. Yeah, and I'm enjoying it. It's uh, written by Cecil – I don't know how to say this person's last name – 
Castellucci, I guess. Art by Marley Zarcone and Becky Clunan. And it's 176 pages, and it's full color. Normally retails for $16.99. It's 42% off, so it's only $9.85. And it gets the shag stamp of approval, at least halfway through the book it does, uh, as I'm enjoying it, and you should give it a shot. I didn't know that uh, Becky Clunan was drawing that. I really like her stuff. That's cool. Well, she did the cover. So she, okay. Oh, okay. In fact, okay. there are some amazing, like, because you know, because it's a collected edition, they give you the cover and the variant cover as well, and there are some amazing variant covers. They're just stunning. Actually, well, the real covers are stunning as well, but they're just beautiful. Really, really nice. So, folks, please head over to InStockTrades.com and uh, let, pick up your collected editions there, and let them know that the Fire and Water Podcast Network sent you. We would sincerely appreciate that. So, if this is your first episode of the Who's Who podcast, you've come to the right place, folks, because this is where we talk about Who's Who. Look, it's convenient, that. Uh, right now, we're in the middle of covering Who's Who in the DC Universe, the Loose Leaf Edition, which was the 16-issue miniseries. It ran... Um, it ran 24 entries per issue, and on the front side, you would get this full-page, full-bleed picture artwork, which is just gorgeous. The back side, you get all your personal stats, you know, height, weight, all that kind of stuff. And most importantly, the thing Rob loves the most, which is the color key identifying whether they're heroes <laughs> or villains or teams. I mean, seriously, guys, Rob is actually taken to painting the walls of his house. He's like, you know, whenever, you know, he hangs like a frame, like a picture of his dad, and he does it in red, and he writes hero over to his dad. I mean, it's 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 become a big part of his life. And it's, um, it's I, uh, I've secretly color-coded everyone in the network, so when they respond to me, I know who I'm talking to. I'm like, oh, he's, he's a villain. He's kind of supernatural. He's a good guy. Oh, there's nobody good guys, but right. uh, no one. Chris is a good guy. But everybody else, uh, a little bit of su- little suspect, I gotta say. Well, I think Ryan probably gets villain, and Zoom definitely gets supernatural. Though. I mean, come on, he's amazing. So. <laughs> Nathaniel gets technology. <laughs> So, folks, we're going to describe what these art pieces look like. The goal is for you to uh, be able to kind of follow along and maybe remember the entries and understand what we're talking about without you having to pull out your binders. Because, quite frankly, trying to drive down the interstate and juggle your binders is just a formula for disaster. Talk about distracted driving. That's just not good for anybody. So, uh, with that said, I think we're just going to get into this, right? I believe so. This is Who's Who number seven, cover date of February 1991. Oh, 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 wait, no, there's big news. We completely forgot there's big news, Rob. So last episode, we talked about the fact that um, Who's Who was starting to appear on Comixology. And when we did the last issue, our last episode, six issues had dropped. And we were thinking, okay, they're just going to drop a few issues every couple of weeks. No, kablam, they dropped the rest of the 20, to get up to the full 26 almost immediately. So all 26 issues of the original Who's Who is out on Comixology and digital. Everyone says they look gorgeous. They're beautiful. I picked them up myself. Definitely, if you don't own the original issues, or you know what, so you, you want to support it, you should go out there and pick up those issues digitally on Comixology. It's so cool these things are in print. Oh, I'm so excited about it. Yeah, that is, that's amazing news that they would make the effort to do it, considering that that is a directory of a long-gone era of the DC universe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, what, two universes ago? I mean, it, it, to some extent? Something like that. <laughs> At least, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, one other thing to note, too. As we go through this, by the way, there is a, uh, a mystery entry, a character called Sudden Death from the Hawk and Dove series. And he made it into the Loose Leaf Who's Who, however... His name didn't make it on the covers. And so for many years, people weren't exactly sure what issue he was in because, you know, most people tear their who's who apart and have no idea who was in what issue except by the cover. So a lot of people seem to think Sudden Death was in this issue number seven. Turns out that's not actually correct. He's in issue 11. So we won't be covering Sudden Death today. If you were expecting us to, I apologize. He will be covered in issue number 11. And our thanks to Paul Hicks for giving us that information. 
So finally, something valuable comes out of Paul Hicks. <laughs> Don't give him too much credit. He probably read it on the website. Anyway, so back into this. So sorry. Who's Who number seven, cover date of February 1991, on the shelves January 2nd, 1991. So there's only a month between the release date and the cover date. And it, there is a mention in the letter space about how they were running behind schedule at this point. So, I mean, it's a big project, so I can imagine it would be difficult. Price point is $4.95. That, you know, in modern day, because that's 1990, in modern day money, I think that's about the, our national deficit, right? It's about the same. Um, Back then, you could buy a car. Right, exactly. So, then, uh, so getting it, the cover we'll talk about later, but it is Justice League America, which is awesome. We'll talk about it when we get to the actual entry. In the letters page, there's only a couple things I want to mention. They do mention how the earliest issues of Who's Who in the DC Universe, the Loose Leaf, were going to second printings. I didn't know that. That's so cool. I, I, sh- I was you know, working in a comic shop. I should have remembered that. But uh, yeah, so they went to second printings with this series. I think that's absolutely fantastic. That, that's. That is awesome. And there's also a letter in here. I think you used a pseudonym, Rob. But there's a letter in here complaining about the color codes. So Did you uh, just say pseudonym? Did I just hear you say that? Did I say it wrong? Probably. You I said am... pseudonym. What the hell is it? Is that a villain? Pseudon- I think that's pseudonym. A... Okay. Pseudonym. Full disclosure, folks, I am seriously hopped up on Diet Mountain Dew in an entire sleeve of Thin Mint cookies right now. So Girl Scout you treat cookies. yourself too well. <laughs> Girl Scout cookies have arrived in the Matthews house, and it's good for no one. So. I'm just saying. Uh, pseudonym is what I was trying to say, right? Isn't that correct? Well, so, well it's funny. A pseudonym sounds like a, a villain. Like oh, I wouldn't true. be surprised if there's like, you know, first appearance, Blue Beetle number seven. See? Or, or first appearance, Who's Who podcast uh, number seven. Anyway, uh, there's a guy in here complaining that the color codes were wrong for <laughs> Maxwell Lord. It's like, no, my favorite letter of all time. I know. Uh, just so complaining about it. In fact, the, they come back and say, you're right. We were wrong, and we're going to go ahead and reprint those issues or entries in issue 16 just for you. So, uh, yeah, that's wait. The- hold on. You are not doing justice to this letter. Oh, okay. You're well, just go skipping ahead. Go over ahead. this big time. First it. of all, there are other there are a bunch of other very fine letters in the inside cover and back back cover, but but they almost take a back seat to Mr. Michael Gradman of Kingwood, Texas. And <laughs> and I, I love the note that's dropped in here. It's before the letter. It says the following letter was written to DC Vice President Bruce Bristow, director of our marketing department. So I love that the guy wrote it to the to the VP of, of marketing. <laughs> Dear Mr. Vice President Bruce Bristow, you made a crazy flip-flop with two of the entries in Who's Who Number Two. On the color code for the categories, you colored the bar on hero Laurel Gand blue instead of red. And from Maxwell Lord, supporting cast member of the Justice League International, you colored his bar red instead of blue. Because of this mishap, could you send me corrected copies of these two entries? Or could you send me who's who number three you cannot get the problem fixed? <laughs> it's the greatest letter ever published in the history of comic books. Never has there been fan entitlement more boiled down into two paragraphs than Mr. Gradman. Just the idea that, like... This is this is a calamity on a scale unseen in human history, and it must be corrected personally by you, Mr. VP. And I demand corrected copies in my mailbox immediately. I, I just – I love it. Well, I, I like the idea too because everyone's had somebody talk to their boss at some point about something stupid, and you're like, why did they go to them? It's like contacting the CEO of Apple because one of the apps on your phone didn't work right. It, it really is. <laughs> Really is it is great. You're right. I did not. I did not pay that letter. It's due justice. So um, thank you for stepping in there. <laughs> I, I just. I remember buying this issue and getting that letter, and I was just my jaw just dropped. I was like, dude, dude, let's get some perspective here. I mean, oh my god. And by the fact that they mentioned who it was sent to, 
Right. I think that's them kind of winking everybody. Look, 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 yeah, look at this Jamoke. Here we go. It's great. Well, they probably gave a lot of people ideas. I bet that's who Chris Franklin said his letter to. About to find out. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's funny because Michael Gradman uh, is online as Diablo Frank. That's funny. We didn't really know that. We're not supposed to say that. You know that's not oh, public sorry. information. Sorry. Sorry. Jeez, OP. Texas. Just it's... saying. <laughs> Anyway, uh, also on the letters page, they do announce the the release of the second binder as well, which is, of course, the the Brian Ballin piece, which everybody loves. No, wait, second binder. Hold on. Let me pull it out. uh, It is. Yeah, that's the Ballin one. Yeah, yeah, it's the Brian Ballin one. Okay. All right. So getting into the first entry is some guy who hangs out with the guy that talks to fish. Uh, yeah, we're starting Aqual- off on a high note here. Aqualad. You know, it's a shame there's no movie for this franchise that could have made any money or anything, right? But that... <laughs> Billion dollars. Okay, all right, all right, enough. Top, uh, top 20 money-most-making movies of all time, isn't that right? Oh, my mm-hmm. God. The top the most money-making DC movie of all time. Insane. Okay. Isn't that amazing? So uh, anyway. I'm going to actually – even though I'm leading this issue, which we're all thankful for, I'm going to take a back seat here and let Robadoodle here uh, talk about Aqualad. Go for it, buddy. Okay, well, I've been trying to get into it, and you keep talking. So anyway, so yeah, anyway, this thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. So Omega Men. No, no, no. We're starting off on a high <laughs> note with with Aqualad by Steve Lytle, the great Steve Lytle. It's got this very nice picture of Garth floating in the water, and then there's a very familiar walrus uh, in front of him. More on that in a moment. In front of this nice kind of circular design of this kind of like a, kind of like a rock formation. It looks really cool. There's a sunlight streaming down. It's very nice. And the main um, difference between this listing and, of course, his original listing and the original Husu is that in this time, uh, in, the, in the intervening years, he lost Tula. And so it reiterates the origin of that he was an outcast because of his purple eyes, and then Aquaman discovered him, and he took him under his wing. I mean, you guys you guys know all that and became a member of the Teen Titans. But then it gets into the thing where he fell in love with Tula, and then Tula died during the crisis. And after that, he has just become kind of this mopey guy, and he says Aqualad withdrew from surface activities. He's only been seen once uh, with his fellow Titans, uh, and, and, and it also talks about how he, he and Aquaman – uh, grew apart uh, on, on the insets. There's a nice shot of Aqualad, Aquaman caught up in some like uh, some uh, like help or something, or something yeah. seaweed or something. And Aqualad is helping him be freed with a knife. And then there's him hanging out with the Teen Titans. And then there's a shot of him uh, presumably mourning the dead body of Tula. And it's very sad because I like them as a couple. I think they were really cute. And I admired their willingness to make Aqualad to go so far down that road to making him just miserable and depressed mm-hmm. at the same time it doesn't you know there's n- not there's not too far to go with that at a certain right. point you know because then he's just like sad sack all the time um you, ha- you have to let somebody come back from that if you want right, to tell that story right exactly now i was very curious as to why steve lytle drew this listening uh, because I, as far as I knew, Steve Lytle doesn't have any connection to Aqualad. So I reached out to Steve Lytle. Oh, wow. And, okay. Yeah, and I asked him, and I said, well, how did you end up uh, drawing this uh, this listing? And he wrote back, very nice to write back, and he said, I've always liked underdog characters, you know, characters that have great unexplored potential. On top of everything else, I have very fond memories of Aqualad and Tusky from the Filmation cartoon. I even remember quietly pretending that I was Aqualad while swimming underwater. Mm. Editor, right, editor Michael Yuri asked me if I had any particular characters that I wanted to do. I think he had a list of available characters that were not already locked into a particular artist from that character's history. I know that I jumped at the chance to draw Aqualad, but said on one condition 
I've got to include Tusky the Walrus. <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, Michael and I are from the same generation, and he thought it was a great idea. In fact, he was so enthusiastic about the piece that he ended up asking if he could buy the original <gasps> for his personal collection. Instead, I gifted the original art to him. Oh, so wow. There, there's the secret origin of why Steve Lytle drew Aqualad. And it's a great piece. I love it. Well, you know, uh, Michael Urey confirms the Tusky thing in the letters page. He even yes, he, he specifically says that, yes, that is Tusky, which was great. Yep. I, didn't, I had no idea about the other backstory. This is really interesting. And, and you know, Steve Lytle helps run the Facebook page for what is it, the Aquaman and Aqualad thing? I believe um, so, yes. That our buddy little Russell Burbage is, uh, works with, too? Mm-hmm. So that's very cool. That's awesome. And it is a beautiful drawing. You're absolutely right. Now, you talked about the primary difference between the previous Aqualad entry and this one. I thought you were going to say the biggest difference is the mullet. But, you know. No. <laughs> it does look a little silly, doesn't it? Because, you know, he's supposed to have, like, really curly hair normally. So the mullet doesn't quite – I don't know. Anyway. I, I, I'm willing to take the mullet over that giant perm that he had. I never really was a big <laughs> fan of that. Uh, also, the only other thing I want to mention, they do talk about the Titans hunting here, just putting that in there for Philemon, uh, and they do talk about how Aqualad was injured during that. Now, the entry is written by Robert Greenberger, and the entry, of course, is red, and his first appearance was Adventure Comics number 260. So, that's, what's that, 1958, something like that? that something right? like that. Yeah, sometimes they have the years here, sometimes they don't, but yeah. But yeah. Wow, okay. And to give you some perspective, on the shelf at this time was New Titans number 74, which is three issues into the Titans hunt, and Aqualad had been in the uh, issue before this. And if you want more on Aqualad, you could turn into, oh, I don't know, the Aquaman and Firestorm podcast, maybe? Just a thought. Anyway, moving on to the next entry is I almost said Batgirl. Oh my gosh. Uh, Barbara Gordon, I'm sorry, with uh, art by... Kevin McGuire and Carl Kessel, which is a really interesting combination. I do have a question, though, Rob. Um, I should describe the picture first. It is Barbara Gordon in her wheelchair sitting at a desk with a personal computer. She's got her desk lamp on. And in the background, you see her sort of standing over her uh, as Batgirl with uh, silhouetted bats flying around and everything. It's very, it's a very cool piece. It gives you the essence of both her being Barbara Gordon and Batgirl. And Barbara Gordon, the name, is within the bat. Like there's a uh, iconography of a bat swoop, which was actually used as on, on a lot of cover treatments for Batman. Now, my question for you, Rob, is in the bottom right-hand corner, there's a BK there, a very stylized BK signature, and uh, then it says 1990. I'm struggling with that. You know, it's it's drawn by Kev McGuire and Carl Kiesel. There's no BK in that, other than Carl's. It could be the K. Is the BK supposed to be Barbara Kiesel, maybe, or Bob Kane? Uh, uh, I have to assume it's Barbara Kessel. That that's Carl is giving his wife some visual credit, even though she yeah. wrote the listing. She had nothing to do with the artwork. That that must be it. It's it's very odd. It, it, I mean, the B and the K are so stylized; they even have a shadow uh, in themselves. So anyway, I, I love the piece. What do you think of the art? I like it. I don't know if Carl Kiesel and McGuire are the greatest combination. I mean, I think Carl Kiesel is a great inker, and of course, McGuire is a great artist, but. This may be one of those things that, you know, two grace that two tastes that don't necessarily taste great together. I like the design of it, though, because I think it really uh, suggest if you don't know already, it suggests that, of course, you know, she's now more Barbara Gordon than she is Batgirl. She has Batgirl in her history, but she is now more Bat- Barbara Gordon than she is uh, the crime fighter. I do love her giant monitor. That's very funny. Just looking at old timey computers. Well, C- like that. The old CRTs. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, no, I, I, I like it. I don't love it. Uh, but, but again, it's, it, it's, a, it's a big difference from the last listing, of course, because now she's Barbara Gordon as opposed to Batgirl. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it, on the inside there, or on the, the, sorry, the other side, it says created by Bob Kane, which I didn't 
really remember Bob Kane was involved with her creation. Or yeah, is sure he was. Okay, yeah, that's what I was kind of what I was wondering. Anyway, uh, first appearance is Detective Comics number three hundred fifty nine, January nineteen sixty seven. Just moments before the TV show, there they tried to they got that under the wire, if I remember correctly. Now, I, I sort of like you. I reached out for more information. I reached out to our friend Stella, who hosts the Batgirl to Oracle podcast, for to ask some questions about this particular entry compared to other ones. What was really the standout things that I might want to focus on? And she talks about how this origin it, it breaks down how when Babs was a little girl. She used to fantasize about being a superhero, and she would play with her friend Marcy and how her mother died. see in the inset. Yep. Uh, she talked about how her mother died in an automobile accident, and her father basically drank himself to death. Then she goes to live with her uncle Jim Gordon, and she had – while she was living with Jim Gordon, she had this huge crush on Batman, which sort of inspired her to dress as Batgirl for a party. She went to surprise her father, got involved, fought to kill her moth, all that sort of stuff. Now – Stella was kind of to explain to me, basically, this is the Barbara Randall, or later Barbara Kiesel, version of Batgirl's origin, which was introduced in the Batgirl special, and then later reinforced in the Secret Origins issue. That's that version of it, where you you sort of lose the pre-crisis stuff. She no longer has the PhD. She was never never a congresswoman. She doesn't have Tony, her brother, who was in the CIA, which I don't even remember that thing. But Stella, of course, has you know very deep, deep pockets of knowledge on this stuff. But... Uh, and at this point, you know, in the Batgirl special, you know, Batgirl retires. She quits being Batgirl right after Crisis. And she ends up being shot, of course, by the Joker, and she goes on to become Oracle. And that's where we are today. The biggest thing that jumped out at me and also Stella found odd in this entry, it actually specifically says that she was already acting as Oracle before she got shot by the Joker, which that was never represented in any comics. That's actually a retcon happening right here. And as far as we know, it was never picked up on by anyone else either. I, I've never heard of this. I don't know if uh, – have you heard anything about this? No, that whole final paragraph was strange to me because it leads off with her mentioning that she was shot by the assassin Cormorant. And I don't know – I mean I haven't read a whole ton of background stories, but I never heard of that. And as as I was reading the, the entry for the first time in many years, I thought, wait a minute. Did they did they retcon the killing joke? Is I thought that, that at who, first too, yeah. Is that who shot her? And then they, then they mentioned it again. I'm like, so wait a minute. So she's been shot twice? Like, wow, this is grim. Well, the Cormorant thing was, if I remember right, tied into the Batgirl special, which came out again after Crisis but before Killing Joke where she retires right. from being Batgirl. So that, right. that's all the Mignola, The Mignola cover, I believe, right? Didn't that special I, have that? I can't remember, honestly. It's been too long since I've seen it, so I don't know. Okay. I but, um, but that's the gist of it. Um, and interesting, she's listed as supporting cast at this point rather than hero because really she was kind of a supporting cast member in Suicide Squad, which is sort of sad because I think she still deserves the hero banner personally. That's just my take on it. Then uh, other things just worth mentioning is that uh, at the time of this printing, uh, Suicide Squad was on issue 50, but the previous month was issue 49, which had tied into her confronting her feelings about the Joker. Because the Joker – and I can't remember the exact details from the Suicide Squad issue, whether she actually faced the Joker or she just faced him, like him in cyberspace or her own fears or something. But it's got the, the – 49 had this amazing cover by Brayfogle where she's pointing a gun like right at the camera. And you see the bat sort of stuff, iconography behind her. But she's in the Oracle wheelchair, and she's pointing the gun at the camera, and she says, smile. So you know, it's her confronting the Joker, which is just really powerful. Great, great stuff. So, uh, again, for more on Batgirl uh, or Oracle or Barbara Gordon, you should definitely check out the Batgirl to Oracle podcast by our friend Stella. Next entry is Blockbuster. He's so tough, he's knocked his own logo over. Uh, to be more specific, this is Blockbuster 2. And you know I'm going to say it, folks. Electric Boogaloo. Art is by Tom Lyle and Doug Hazelwood. Now, i got to ask you, Rob. Th th this, 
this art piece. It's it's done by the Starman artists, which makes sense because he recently appeared there. And I think I think the design is great. It's blockbuster. He's punching through a brick wall, coming right at you. He's he's, he's coming at you, punch through the wall. The bricks are actually flying at you, almost in three D. And behind him, the, these cops or security officers or whatever officers or whatever are shooting him. And I think the design is nice. I like the thickness of a lot of the lines. But there's something just not right with the figures. And I'm sitting here struggling. Is that a penciling issue or an inking issue? Do you have an instinct there to tell you what's happening? Well, what are you saying is wrong with it? Well, like Blockbuster himself, like his chest looks sort of not right where it leads into the muscles and, and maybe the well, he, shortening he, of the knee and stuff he like that. Well, he doesn't have any neck to speak yeah, of, like where right. his neck is going. Um, there's something – it's funny. My, my instinct when I look at this piece – is the style of by Lyle and and Hazelwood? Uh, it's very smooth, like it's very clean. Yeah. And this this looks like Blockbuster to me looks like one of those Remco dolls that came out in the early eighties. <laughs> that was like the Warlord Hercules in Iraq. Right, right. Where they were all they all kind of built like He Man. Yes. This, is, this yes. looks like it could have totally fit with that line. It just has that kind of build to. <laughs> Uh, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Well, and if you don't know who Blockbuster is, folks, at least at this point, he's basically just a, a skin-toned Hulk. Is really what he is. Yeah. He's giant. He's muscle-bound. He's he's but he, he has regular flesh tone instead of green, and he's he likes to smash stuff. Um, this is, as I said, Blockbuster Two, because the first Blockbuster was his brother, uh, Mark. This is Roland. And his brother Mark basically ended up as Blockbuster, and and Roland used to manipulate him and use his brother to help him because he Roland was like a petty crook. So then Mark, the original Blockbuster, goes to fight. He ends up in the the very first iteration of the superhero su- or supervillain Suicide Squad. Dies in Legends. Then Invasion comes around, and the gene bomb goes off, and it triggers Roland's metagene, and he ends up and he gets very sick, and they end up giving him an experimental steroid, and he becomes Blockbuster, basically the new Blockbuster. Which personally, I kind of like that synchronicity. I love kind of the legacy aspect where they're basically the same character; they were just brothers. I think that's nice. I don't know. There's something uh, I don't know. There's a synchronicity to it that I just really, really enjoy. Uh, in here, he fought. This this version of Blockbuster was created by Roger Stern and Tom Lyle for the Starman comics. They do list his, both the original Blockbuster's appearance and his brothers. And he fought Starman. I love how in the text it talks about how he fought Starman and Batman uh, uh, together. And it says basically it says Starman beat him. But then it says with a little help from Batman. It's just it's, it's cute that Batman helped just a little bit. Well, I, I have to. That features my favorite line because right after that it says, "As the Batman made a rare trip west." <laughs> I love that. This is a guy who regularly goes into space, but yet somehow going into Arizona is like, "Ooh, he's out of his comfort zone." I just thought that made me chuckle. Well, keep in mind this is 1990. This is only five years after uh, what? What is it? Um, five years after Crisis. So Batman is still sort of the orbit. Well, you know, okay, I'm talking this about is Justice sides. League International I, out in space. Yes, what I the just hell realized, are you talking about? As I was saying, all of that, that the podcast I do about the Justice League, he regularly goes to foreign countries and stuff like that too. Never mind, forget all of that. You're right. Oh. <laughs> well, Bob Greenberger wrote the entry. Take it up with him. We're, we're friends with him on Facebook. So. <laughs> <laughs> that that bad costume gets really uncomfortable in that Arizona heat. Well, exactly. We should ask our friend Sean and uh, Dr. G about that. So the, now what's not in here, obviously, is later after this where Blockbuster becomes actually a really viable threat. In Underworld Unleashed, he makes a deal with Neuron to basically be intelligent because he's, you know, he's kind of Hulk-like. He's kind of stupid. And he becomes super intelligent, and he becomes the main 
antagonist for the entire Nightwing series. He basically kind of becomes like a supervillain kingpin, and he's he's a fantastic. Chuck Dixon did amazing things with the character in Nightwing, so it's really nice to see that this character got some extra legs and kept going. So uh, we already talked about the artist and writer, and of course his border is black, and we talked about the first appearances. So really, um, oh, oh, okay. So last time we saw a Blockbuster was 18 months ago in Starman number 10. So it's been a little while since we'd seen him at this point. And if you want more on Blockbuster, you should check out the Manhunter Starman Adventure Hour with our buddy Aaron Head Moss. All right, this next one. Oh, this is this is freaky deaky. Okay, it is Brother Power the Geek. This is a character who who has far too much life and popularity compared to what he, he's really earned. You know, he he picked up a, a weird popularity that just keeps him going because Brother Power the Geek appeared in 1968 in two issues of comics created by Joe Simon. And that's about it until the 1980s. He just completely vanished off the map. He ended up in Who's Who? Didn't it in the first iteration of Who's Who? Yes, uh, drawn by Valentino. Yeah, I think it's one of those entry, one of those situations where somebody ended up in Who's Who, so he suddenly went on a lot of people's radar. Because up till then, he had done almost nothing. And then right before this, uh, this, this entry of Who's Who here, uh, in 1989, Neil Gaiman, of all people, wrote about Brother Power the Geek in Swamp Thing Annual Number 5. So, you know, I, I wonder, did Neil genuinely re- remember the 1968 comic? Or did the Who's Who sort of jog his memory or make him interested in the character enough to use him? I don't know. I bet it's probably a little of both. You know, they probably had the comic, and then they're, oh wow, yeah, him. You know, that kind of thing. Because yeah, this. I mean, it's it's drawn by Keith Giffen and and Malcolm Jones, and Keith mm-hmm. Giffen, of course, you know, was mega popular and a fan favorite, and yet he's spending his time drawing this, <laughs> um, and th- that suggested Brother Power. And he's just, it's funny, he's just Brother Power on the on the actual listing and on the art. He's Brother Power with the geek. Oh yeah, uh, like he is a you know he's popular to a certain strata of comics pro. <laughs> That's fair. That's very fair. We should talk about the entry, uh, the, the art. He, he, Brother Power has an orange sort of sweatshirt with a design on it, and he's got blue pants, and he's got long blonde hair. But because it's Keith Giffen, it's very stylized. Everything's all in shadows. You can barely see his face. You just kind of see one eye creeping out. Behind him, he's standing up against a wall that's covered in very 60s hippie, hippy-dippy love piece graffiti. And yet it still looks very dark and dystopian because it's Keith Giffen in the late 1980s, early 1990s. So it's – um, I don't know. Do you, do you like the piece? I think it's fine. I actually like the Valentina one better. I like that it's cartoony. I think the big selling point of this listing is it's written by Mark Wade and it's done in the hippy-dippy language. Yes. Uh, occupation, it says like puppet elemental. <laughs> actually has the word like, which is fantastic. Yeah, it says literally like, yep. comma, puppet elemental. It says the same for her, the writer. It says like Mark Wade man. It's, right. uh, yeah. it, it's not quite snapper car level from last episode, but it's still, it's a lot of fun. So, uh, in fact, so, all right, let's talk about the origin here. So basically there's these two hippies named Paul and Nick in the 60s who were spreading the message of love. They ended up getting beaten up, unfortunately, and their, their clothes were all bloody. They went home. They hung their clothes, their bloody clothes on a tailor's dummy that was there uh, in their apartment near the, near the radiator. Months later, lightning strikes the radiator and the doll. And brings it to life. And that's how Brother Power the Geek becomes a living entity. And as Rob said, he's a puppet elemental, essentially. And he goes on to become the protector of these hippies. And he's spreading <laughs> the message of love. At some point – okay, this thing only had two issues. I mean Joe Simon must have packed the hell out of story in these things because in these two issues, he runs for uh, Congress. He, he ends up in the psychedelic circus. 
Uh, and then I guess in, in the interim there, he ends up on a missile shot into space. And it comes back down to Earth in 1989 in Tampa, Florida, of all places. And that's where the Swamp Thing Annual takes place. So it's, you know, they really were trying to tap into sort of the Frankenstein element, but instead of being a monster, being all about love, they're also trying to tap into sort of the Silver Surfer, silver surfer uh, wandering outcast philosopher kind of stuff. That's what they were going for with this. And uh, shortly after this, in 1993, they did a Vertigo Visions uh, issue called The Geek, which was by uh, Mike Allred, who would be perfect illustrating this, right? But it's written by Rachel Pollock, who not my favorite. She took over for Grant Morrison on Doom Patrol, and it didn't didn't really leave a good taste in my mouth. But so uh, <laughs> that that's Brother Power of the Geek. He has uh, got the border of purple for Supernatural, and we've already talked about the first appearances and everything. And um, yeah, I mean that's really it. On on the inset pictures, you've got the shop dummy or the tailor's dummy sitting there, and then you've got the next shot where he has grown huge proportions and he's stomping on Tampa. Everybody talks about uh, how weird Jack Kirby's creations got in the 70s, and okay. they did get weird. But I'm sorry, he had nothing on Joe Simon. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Joe Simon was the guy behind, again, we just talk about Brother Power, Prez. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The Outsiders, that oh, one off that Max, right? Max Romero and I covered. The Green Team. <laughs> I mean, he was just full – he was full of ideas that nobody wanted. And uh, and DC really let him go ahead and do it. And so, like, all of these concepts of his ran, like, two, three issues and the DC canceled. And they just kept trying. So you got to give Joe credit. He was He was doing different stuff. Well, I mean, they keep trying to bring him back. I mean, Gail Simone did a Green Team series just a couple years ago. So. Right, and right, and this stuff keeps getting brought back. So obviously, there's something there that really struck a chord with with people. Like you picture, like maybe like you know, eight year old Neil Gaiman like picking this comic up, being like, <gasps> you know, and then it just sits in his <laughs> mind for thirty years. <laughs> I do. Uh, I, I, I went to go see if Brother Powers appeared in other media or something. Probably the most interesting entry of that was there was an episode of Batman Brave and the Bold. It did not feature Brother Power the Geek. However, it featured Guy Gardner reading a comic book about Brother Power the Geek, which I just find hilarious. So, super there needs fun. to be a there needs to be a Brother Power like uh, plush doll or something. Well, one of those. Uh, remember DC did I don't know what they were called DC Nation or something. They did those like super short little shorts basically where they you know they did oh they, yeah sure yeah they did Animal Man they did Vibe. Green Arrow yeah Green Arrow that they made a great Brother Power of the Geek what a great platform for it. they did a Shade the Changing Man who we're going to talk about in a minute they Spectre, did a Shade yeah, one yeah. so yeah. By the way, all of those are on the DC Universe app. Uh, if you go out there and look for those, they're they're all there. So I just sat there and ate a bunch of popcorn and watched a bunch of those one night. Super fun. <laughs> all right. Next entry is Checkmate by Steve Irwin, the Crocodile Hunter, with uh, Al Vey. And Too soon. So, <laughs> it will always be too soon. So here's the deal, folks. I get what they were going for with the design concept here. But it really came off pretty boring. I mean, what you've got is a bunch of the Checkmate Knights standing there. You've got Blackthorn in her less hideous costume standing there with lots of cleavage. You've got uh, Harry Bullock. You've got Harry Stein. You've got the chess pieces, Peacemaker. But it's as a design. Like, I get it, but it just didn't come together. Am I wrong here? Yeah, I think it is kind of sort of just random. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There's nothing terribly cohesive about the design or anything like that so yeah i mean it's certainly drawn nice enough but but you know but but yeah it's just kind of and i really like the design like i think the checkmate 
outfits oh my really gosh. slick um especially the when you look at the inset on the back page of, mm-hmm. of the close-up and it's like a, por- a profile shot like yeah that's a great looking design these gold plates on top of these black tunics they look like ninjas but they have this kind of armor uh but yeah the design is just kind of like yeah and then it doesn't help that the like this dark gray background just really kind of deadens the whole thing yeah now you talk about the the armor. The, the checkmate armor design is one of the best in comics that came out of the '80s. It is gorgeous. I I want to say the armor was designed by John. You know, I think we're completely replaying the last time we did a checkmate entry from Who's Who. On it, I think is what we're saying here. <laughs> but um, I think John Burns when he did the uh, design on the actual armor itself, because um, it it even looks a bit like a burn design. But yeah, it's like in fact when I was a kid and I used to draw my own superheroes, I would trace the checkmate costumes and try i would use that as my starting point be like okay i want this kind of armor and then i'd kind of make it my own but that was i always thought it was so badass now they they do credit paul kupperberg and steve Irwin as the creators of checkmate but again i thought john byrne played a a hand in this maybe not no i think it's kupperberg is the writer behind it okay uh i mentioned harry stein and harvey bullock it still baffles my mind that harvey bullock ended up as you know what are the (laughs) Important people in this clandestine, you know, espionage organization, but whatever. So basically in Checkmate, you know, it's it, it's a version of uh, the CIA with superheroes is kind of what you got. And there's the main the main protagonists are these 30 knights who are the guys in the cool armor and they go out there and they, they fight and do these espionage gigs. They've got also Peacemakers part of the group and Blackthorn. Now, this entry is written after the Janus Directive, which is where all the intelligence organizations in the DC Universe, such as Task Force X or Suicide Squad and Checkmate, all these kind of things, uh, Captain Atom Project, all kind of had a war with each other. And at the end of this Janus Directive, Amanda Waller was displaced. She was the queen, as they were in Checkmate. She was in charge of it. She got fired. Serge Steele has now taken over. Uh, and and actually, two months ago, before, prior to this publication of this Who's Who entry, Checkmate series was actually canceled. So they're actually no longer in publication. But you know, if you step back from Checkmate, you got chess which is really cool. You've got those night costumes we talked about. You've got espionage. You've got Paul Kupperberg, who I enjoy as a writer. I mean, all of these things should add up to it being awesome. And yet, Checkmate has never really grabbed me. And I, I wish it would, but it just hasn't. The only time Checkmate really got me was the Greg Rucka series, which was really exceptional. It was very good. It's a lot more superhero-focused, but a very, very espionage related. So I, I do get my full endorsement to the Greg Rucka series, if you guys want to check it out. It was very good. Um, so if you want more on the Checkmate groups, the best place to go is the Task Force X podcast, which does feature Suicide Squad and Checkmate coverage, again, by our buddy Aaron Head Moss. All right. Uh, oh, I should have mentioned, first, uh, first appearance, Action Comics 598 from March 1988. Sorry about that. Next entry, a character that really has, isn't going to go anywhere in the world. I don't think he's got any level of popularity at this point. <laughs> it's The Chief, who is now a TV star. Oh, my gosh. Timothy what? Dalton as The Chief. How crazy is that? What was what was less likely, that Aquaman would be the number one DC movie of all time or that there would ever be a Doom Patrol TV series? Starring James Bond as the chief, right? Yeah. That How is... Crazy is that? <laughs> well, this art is by Richard Case and Mark McKenna. I absolutely love this entry. It has got the chief sitting in there in his souped-up, awesome you know, electric, electric wheelchair. In the background, you see Cliff steal uh, Robot Man's face up on the monitor. You've got that cool cover treatment that the Doom Patrol covers had at this point, which is the big white stripe, vertical stripe, and it has the Chief logo in there. And the Chief looks almost co- either contemplative or bored. He's got like his finger resting on the on the arm of the chair and propped against his face, and he's eating a chocolate bar, which is absolutely adorable. I love that, because at this point, the Chief had a, a serious addiction to chocolate. 
And we see there's a case of them in the foreground. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, you know, and, and I shared this with Rob. There's an ad for the Doom Patrol show right now, which features Timothy Dalton in a wheelchair sitting pretty similarly holding a chocolate bar just like that. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I put it on Twitter and asked our buddies, uh, Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast, and said, you know, is this on purpose? The, you know, the similarities between these two pictures just seems too much. And Paul totally agrees. He thinks it's absolutely on purpose. He thinks the similarities are, 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 are planned that way. I also asked, when did the chocolate fascination start? Because I was pretty sure it started with Grant Morrison series, but I wasn't sure. Paul Hicks confirmed it. But more importantly, Oh, the artist of this piece, Richard Case, the guy who drew those awesome Grant Morrison uh, Doom Patrol issues, he responded to let us know, yes, it was in fact Doom Patrol with Grant Morrison. He, he believed it was issue number 21 where the chief got into his chocolate fetish, and then Richard Case shared that, in fact, he had to go to the store and buy Hershey's bars for research to draw the chocolate bars. <laughs> So, how awesome is that, Richard Case, helping us out with uh, information for this silly little podcast? Thank you so much. That was Richard very, Case. that was very cool. And I, I like I said, I, I mentioned in previous issues, I'm not like the hugest fan of the work, but I love that all the Doom Patrol uh, entries have a consistent design. I think that's yeah. a great touch. Well, and it's it was also the covers of the Doom Patrol issues. So it not only is it right, consistent right. with the designs here, it's consistent with the comic covers too, which is great. Yeah, I think that's a really great, especially when you realize this is a format that is built to be pulled apart. <laughs> and so, so, but you know what I mean? And pages can get rearranged or whatever. I just think that's a really nice touch. Yeah. Yeah. So going into the, the details itself, um, it's, I always love the known relatives thing. Chief, Chief's got a complicated history here. I love the, the known relatives. It lists uh, Ariane Calder, alleged wife who's deceased, who, which is, of course, from the, the previous iteration uh, by Paul Kupperberg and Steve Lytle, where this woman claimed that she was the chief's wife. Now that he's back from the dead, he's like, I, I ain't married to you. I don't know what you're talking about. So anyway, uh, he's basically, he was a brilliant scientist, and when he was younger, he needed funding, so he made a deal with the secret benefactor to uh, with his research, and turns out that the secret benefactor turned out to be General Amortis. And General Amortis, once, you know, Niles found out that General Amortis was who was giving him money, he's like, oh, I'm not helping you. Well, General Amortis implanted a bomb in the chief's chest uh, that would go off and kill him, and the only way to remove it was for the chief to clinically die. So he had himself clinically killed, had a robot remove the bomb from his chest. Well, unfortunately, the surgery is what actually paralyzed him, which is why he's in the wheelchair. Then the, uh, then the entry goes in to talk about how, you know, of course, he was with the Doom Patrol, and then how the Doom Patrol all died, um, saving that small village, and how he managed to survive, and they talk about the new Doom Patrol and his wife and all that stuff. Anyway, and how he comes back with Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol. And I do like to say, he has two loves, chocolate and secrecy, which is hilarious. And at this point, the retcon had not occurred. Sorry, spoilers, folks. The record, retcon had not occurred, which made the chief the biggest douchebag of the entire DC Universe, where he actually arranged for all the Doom Patrol to end up in those horrible accidents they all had that um that retcon has not occurred yet so i guess that um that evil aspect is reserved specifically for professor martin stein nowadays so <laughs> yay <laughs> <laughs> so uh, at this point doom patrol was on issue number 42 so we're about mm, 30 no 20 issues into grant morrison's run and number 42 features flex metallo mentallo on the cover which is great so if you want more on doom patrol you could Watch the show, which is amazing. I haven't started watching it because I want to binge several episodes all together, but I'm looking forward to it. And, of course, you can listen to the Waiting for Doom podcast with our buddies, which is absolutely fantastic. All right. Oh, and by the way, his border is red for hero. Give it a few years. That color is going to change. All right. Next. I demand corrected copies. <laughs> Thank you. 
Uh, up next is an amazing drawing of the Creeper. Quite possibly my favorite drawing of the Creeper ever. It is by Rick Hedden and Tom McSweeney. Now, do you know what Rick, Ma oh, Rick Hedden's famous for? Not a clue. Absolutely nothing. This guy, it's got to be a pseudonym or something. This guy has done nothing except this entry. There's just no way that somebody walks huh. off the street and draws this. That's, I, am I, that's amazing. I, yeah, this is a superb piece. I mean, I'm looking at this thing thinking Breyfogle. I'm thinking Neil Adams. I don't know. It's, uh, so it's, it's the creeper. He's standing on top of a gargoyle on top of a building. He's got one leg propped up on the gargoyle. The other one stretched out. His hand is reached up to the sky. He's got this maniacal look on his face. Lightning's cracking behind him. There's rain coming down. Guys, this thing is freaking awesome. Uh, this is an incredible art piece. I absolutely love it. And I cannot believe this guy is, is just a one-off artist. There, there's got to be a story to that. And I don't even know who to ask at this point. I, we have to talk to Michael Urey. Uh, yeah, maybe that, that'd be the case. Yeah. Uh, and now in the, on the backside, you've got the three inside pictures, which are oddly enough, all published in reverse order. Like the far right one is the first one. And like if the, the, pro the progression of the story goes, it's like Japanese. It's, it's right to left. So, <laughs> The deal is, uh, you know, it's Jack Ryder. He was this investigative journalist, and he was investigating a mob thing. The mobsters capture him. They drug him. They put him up in this crazy costume for, for their own fun and, and to, ha to just make fun of him. And they beat the crap out of him. They beat him within an inch of his life. They throw him out in the woods, basically. He's found by this scientist named Emil um, Yantz, Yatz. And he, to say, in order to save Jack, he implants this gadget inside of him, which does save him. But he ends up transforming back and forth between Jack Ryder and this creeper costume that they dressed him up in. And he's also got kind of a, a split personality now. The creeper is a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing. The, uh, the creeper personality is insane. And um, you know, I've historically, I haven't really been the world's biggest creeper fan. I haven't found the creeper story that makes me love the character yet. I haven't got there, but dang, this art and, and the writing on here, it gets me really close. It's, it's almost enough to make me care. It's, it's interesting in that the first uh, couple of creeper stories and the mentions here showcase as the first appearance drawn by Steve Ditko. Uh, in his early stories, he was kind of like a Spider-Man kind of creature of the night sort of guy, which is what this, this piece is, I think, hearkening back to. And then every story after that, he's not been like that. He's always been kind of out in the bright day. Mm -hmm. um, Ange and I covered the Creeper story for First Issue Special. Yep. And that one is an incredibly goofy story where he's taking on the the Firefly. And then, of course, he appeared in Justice League International. Yep. Uh, and goofing around there. So, I mean, it's like it's really only that first set of stories where he is kind of this dark kind of almost Batman-y figure. And then the, the never again, but, but whoever Rich Hedden was, he must have really liked that because this, this piece is totally reminiscent of that. Yeah, and it might be Tom McSweeney that really carried the weight. I don't know, but it just looks stunning. So his border's red for hero. Uh, the writer is Mark Wade. And first appearance, as you mentioned, was showcase number 73 from 1968. Now, I, you mentioned Ange. I'm glad you did because that's part of my notes. Dr. Ange is the world's biggest creeper fan as far as I know. And Dr. Ange, I am – I know it's not saying much. So, Ange, I am challenging you. In the comments at this time, would you please list like some quintessential creeper stories? And I don't mean you don't have to say the first appearance because it tells the story. Give me some creeper stories that are going to make me love the character because I am not 
there and I wouldn't mind getting there, but I'm just not there and I need some help. Um, now, if I have to get the superpowers action figure that was almost produced with the suction cups to make me love the character, I'm willing to go that far. But uh... I, You know, now that you mention action figures, I do have a complaint uh, because I had the creeper action figure in the Bruce Timm style. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, like within, I don't know, like a day after taking it out of the package, that big red poofy thing that's yeah. on his shoulders just came loose. And no matter what glue I tried, I could never get it back on. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's not fair. Oh, that's all I'm, I'm saying. So all, all I'm saying is uh, I wrote to the VP of Kenner and asked them for a corrected <laughs> they, they promised it to you in the next wave. Um, <laughs> he recently – Creeper recently appeared at least at this point at Hawk and Dove two months ago. And if you want more on Doctor uh, on Creeper, follow Dr. Ange on Twitter and uh, you can listen wow. to JLI. Well, I mean there's not a lot. You can listen to the JLI podcast where we talk about I think him. you're going to be disappointed though if you go to Ange's Twitter feed looking for Creeper content. That's all we say that, but you know how he is. He's going to load That's it up true. with Creeper now. That's true. His yeah, his his Twitter feed's going to be nothing but pictures of the Creeper or Gene Tierney. That's it. That's his entire Twitter feed. <laughs> Maybe the occasional Supergirl. Um, you can also listen to the Secret Origins podcast, where I, I think Doctor Ange helped cover the Creeper origin there too, if I remember right. I believe so. All right. Up next is Darkseid's Elite, which is a great picture by John Byrne. It's got Darkseid in the foreground, and in the background, he's surrounded here. Well, it's not only the background, but all surrounding him, you see Granny Goodness and Dr. Psycho and Kanto and uh, Steppenwolf and (laughs) Wunderbar, Amazing Grace and Calabac and Desaad and Glorious Godfrey. And they're all, you know, they're obviously his his, uh, elite soldiers or elite, uh, elite advisors. It says you're created by Jack Kirby, which, you know, Amazing Grace wasn't, though. Amazing Grace was created by John Byrne, but that's okay. And I think this is a good way to sort of cover several of the characters. I'm not going to spend much time on it, though, because really most – maybe not most – a lot of these characters get their own entry later. So it's sort of weird that they kind of did this entry because so many of them have their own entry. I will say on the backside, on the the top picture where it shows all like their heads all together uh, – Desaad, without his hood, is really freaking creepy. Like, his hair is so gross. <laughs> it's freaking me out. Now, there are a couple characters here who don't really get the, a main feature, but they're in the inset pictures. You get Infernus, who uh, can create flames uh, and heat with his touch. I, I'm not terribly familiar with that character. I'm not sure where they first appeared. You can also get, uh, you also get Necromina, who... Uh, <laughs> who apparently floats above and can resurrect the dead. It shows them floating above this... Uh, uh, Cemetery and all these cadavers are coming out, which is really pretty creepy. Again, I'm not familiar with where they first appeared. I don't know if those were Jack Kirby creations or popped up later in some of the subsequent uh, New God stuff. I'm not really sure. But the writer for this entry is Peter Sanderson, art again by John Byrne. The border, of course, is black for a dark uh, for. What am I trying to say? Villain. Now, they do not talk about first appearances because obviously everybody had different first appearances. At this point, The New Gods was on issue number 23. And for more on Darkseid's Elite and that kind of stuff, you could probably tune into the Kirby cast where they'll eventually be getting to the New Gods stuff. I do have one nitpick with this piece. I love the artwork by Byrne. I think it's great. They're all standing there. They look cool. I like how proud Darkseid looks. He's yes, just like, he does. Yeah, he does. You know? He looks happy, I'm not, too. Yeah, I'm not going to try and do the voice. Uh, but uh, the, the, the logo. It says Dark Sides in the Dark Side font, as we saw, I believe, in issue one was Dark Side? Uh, one of the earliest one. ones, yeah. One of the early ones. And then the word elite is just Helvetica. <laughs> it's so, it's, it so does not fit 
And I don't know. Again, it's an incredible nitpick. But just to me, it's like this is actually a pretty nice piece. And then it's just this word elite is just stamped in with with like this very boring typeface. I'm sort of curious as to why they didn't just try something a little more. You know, a little, little more eye-catching. That's true. It's fair because the, the dark side font is, you know, it's so metal. We talked about that last time. Yeah. It's so death metal. It's awesome. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it, the, 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 it should stir, it should scream, dark side's elite. You know, but instead it's like, there you go. dark side's elite. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> now, wasn't it, um, wasn't it Beauvais who did a lot of the logos in this version of Who's Who, if I remember right? Uh, I don't know if it's this one. He did it in the previous iteration. I don't know if it's this one. Okay. All right. We'll let him off the hook this time. All right. Coming up next is the demon. Uh, More Jack Etrigan. Kirby. What's that? More Jack Kirby. Yes, exactly right. This one, of course, is uh, Etrigan. And uh, it's a great shot of Etrigan standing over what looks like, I guess, the remnants of a battlefield. He, he seems enormous over and standing over all these little demons running around having a battle. In the background, you see, like, uh, Jason Blood, who's apparently taking a nap, I guess, while, demon, while Etrigan's in control of the body. I'm not really sure. But the demon's great. It looks great. It's... um. Art is by Val. I always say Semechus. I don't know if that's right or not, but I always love his version of the demon. I think he looks absolutely fantastic. Now, this entry is an absolute hoot. Now, the, the front side just says the demon. On the back side, it does say the demon Etrigan. But the, created by Jack Kirby, of course. But you get things like occupation, bastard about town, deposed king, oh hell, uh, known relatives. Uh, let's see, get into. Um, Ran Van Doth of the Pit, which is his mother. So, uh, group affiliations: Degenerates Anonymous and Rhyming Demons Local 101. <laughs> Base of operations: Jason Blood. Parenthesis. No, really. I mean, it's just they, they really are just having a lot of fun with this. Obviously, Dan Raspler, who wrote it, just like decided let's just have a complete kick with this because the series did have a comedic element to it. Uh, if I remember right, wasn't it uh, Alan Grant? Didn't he write this thing? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So the the deal with Etrigan, at least according to this version, was he was a troublemaker, even as a young demon. Like, he even pissed off the other demons. He was so annoying. And eventually Merlin casts a spell, which sort of gives him a little bit of control over Etrigan. And Etrigan actually ends up helping out, like King Arthur and the Round Table, those kind of folks. Towards the end of the, the Camelot era, they end up binding Etrigan to the body of Jason Blood. And of course, Jason Blood has been stuck with Etrigan all these centuries. And they do talk about how throughout sort of the history of Jason Blood and Etrigan, there's been like this repeating cycle of control where they battle for dominance of who controls the figure. And then there's always these loss of memories. So it's almost like he's always having to start over, which is kind of sad. And uh, it, the whole thing is hilariously written, though. I mean, it's really, really funny. You guys should take a chance to read this if you get an opportunity. Uh, there, there is, however, no mention of my uncle, Harry Matthews. Um, if you've ever read the series, you know Harry Matthews is a living pillow. Uh, he doesn't get mentioned in this. And uh, the series was very popular in the 1990s. You know, Garth Ennis took it over later. I've never actually read the book. I've read a couple issues here and there. And every time I read an issue, I just freaking loved it. And so I'm sort of kicking myself for never having read this series. I really think it's one of those I need to go and find, you know, maybe a digital collection of it or something and just burn through it and uh, enjoy the hell out of it. Burn, burn through it. Uh, oh. I, I, have, uh, I have tried to read Jack Kirby's original Demon series, and it, I just find it impenetrable. Okay. But I keep, but I keep trying because it fe- I, think the, I think the Demon is one of his greatest designs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that that's saying something. Uh, I is, love actually, his yeah. yeah. I love his work on the Demon comic. I think uh, Mike Royer it does some tremendous inking. There's it, it's a beautiful book to look at, and I read it, and I'm just like I just don't get this. And then I will read it again like five years later, and I still don't get it. But I keep trying because I just I keep thinking I'll unlock it. 
at some point and then okay. be able to really understand. But I love the character. I just love his visual. I like what he's what's been done with him since. I think Alan Moore, of course, did a great job with him. Uh, we covered that issue of Brave and the Bold where he teamed up with Aquaman. So it's like yeah. he's a great utility player. I, I have not read any of those later issues that you talked about. But I've always liked the character. I loved his action figure. I had the JLU action <laughs> figure. It was great. And you mentioned the other uh, Raspler really decides, hey, Mark Wade's not the only one that can write funny entries. <laughs> uh, and he mentions at the end, it says, Jason Blood is a physically average jamoke. Whose knowledge of magic comes and goes. <laughs> oh, so much fun. In a lot of ways, this sort of reminds me of when the demon guest starred in the Blue Devil summer special. Because, you know, that's a super fun, goofy thing. And Etrigan is hysterical in that thing. He's going around eating everything. He's just a totally wildly funny. And that's kind of the spirit of this, which I really enjoy. Which, again, makes me want to go back and read this. Now, I've never read the Jack Kirby stuff. When I said I've read some issues that I loved, I've never read the Jack Kirby stuff. I'm not really sure it would grab me. But the Alan Grant and Val Semeca's take on the character is something that I think I, I, think I want to dig into. So, uh, the border is purple for Supernatural. First appearance, as you mentioned, is, of course, the Jack Kirby series all the way back to 1972. Hey, look at that! Premiere of the month I was born, August, September 1972. And Coincidence? Then, uh, sorry, I gave you guys too much. Now you're all going to steal my identity. But uh, if you want more on the demon, you can check out the Kirby cast. And I'm surprised no one's like no one's tapped this series or character for some sort of podcast initiative. They really should. Hmm. Anyway, uh, Demon was on issue number nine at this point, so they're still pretty early in the series. Up next is the Elongated Man. Woo! Ralph Dibney, we love you, sir. And, of course, uh, he's got Sue there with him. Art is by Carmen Infantino and Bart Sears. What an interesting combination. Mm-hmm. Especially Carmen Infantino in you know 1990 was a very stylized style. And Bart Sears, of course, was drawing him in Justice League Europe. So it's, a, it's an interesting combination that I think works pretty well. I don't know. So you've got Ralph running, and every part of him is stretching. His legs are coiling. His neck is coiling. His arms are coiling. Uh, his left arm is not coiling, but it's like really extended. Sue's in the background, hands on her hips, just looking cute as a button. And then behind – the whole background is really – red with um i don't know whether those are supposed to be parking spaces i don't know what that design it's just a design element yeah. yeah so i i think it's a nice piece yeah i know i think it's great i i like the idea of combining as you mentioned infantino near the end of his career his stuff got super duper stylized so i think sort of brought in fan favorite bart sears to kind of like give it a, a more modern sheen but i like that they got the original artist to do the listing i think this is kind of a, a perfect compromise of wanting to do something that that pays tribute to the original conception, but giving it a more modern look. So I think it's it's really I think it's a really sharp combo. I, yeah. It's not a combo I ever would have thought would have worked. But I right? Yeah. I mean, those are not those are not two styles you think would go well together. No. But it works. No. Also, Ralph's wearing my favorite costume of the Elongated Man. I know it's not your favorite, but the one from Justice League Europe. It's half purple, half white, with the EM across the chest. Always love this design. It's Stephen DeStefano, if I remember right. Or, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if I said his name right there or not, but uh, I absolutely love this version, so it makes me happy in all kinds of ways. Uh, important things to know about a long man, of course, is his public identity. The world knows who he really is. He took an, a fascination studying India rubber men who were in carnivals, and I don't know if it's PC to say that anymore, but anyway, uh, he studied them, and he found out all of them drank Jingold soda. So he took an extract of Jingold root and used it to transform himself and ended up with all these stretchy powers. And of course, he was in Central City, and he became best friends with the Flash, which is great. Then he moots, uh, meets Sue, who uh, would later on go to be, become his wife, and she's his debutante. Now, uh, they talk about him joining the Justice League. There's no mention specifically of Justice League Detroit, which I understand 
understand is isn't necessary. They you know they cover it by saying Justice League of America, but it sort of makes me sad because that was really the first time Sue became a very big character in the Justice League era. So I, I feel like th- that, that could have got mentioned. It makes me sad. And then of course they talk about Justice League Europe, which is what um, Elongated Man's part of that team now. And then they got to the part where I was like, I was like, I'm just cruising along. I'm super enjoying this thing. And I write down, I even wrote down here, uh, nothing bad ever happened to Sue. Uh, <laughs> I right. wrote that down. But then they get to the part, oh, that just broke my heart, where they talk about um, uh, elongated man's love for puzzles was so great that every year on his birthday, Sue surprises Ralph with a custom tailored mystery, which is adorable and sweet, except it leads you right to remembering identity crisis. Um, because that was the whole setup for that thing. And it just, ugh. So I go back to nothing bad ever happened to Sue. We'll just, we'll just keep saying that. I had my mind wiped of that series, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Satana did that for you. <laughs> um, now, there's, they talk about his detective skills. I'm a little bummed, because the detective skills, I feel like, should have been under powers and abilities, or powers and weapons. I know it's not a superpower, but it's really, you know, when it, that's where those kind of things end up, is under powers. So, because, uh, I mean, they talk about how great his detective skills are, I don't know that they really play them on play them up enough because as far as I understand, Ralph is like the either the greatest or the single greatest detective in the world. You know, right there, either equal to or just below Batman, depending on who's writing the story at the time. So I feel like that really should end up more powers. And there's no mention of the nose twitching. What's up with that? <laughs> I, well, I mean, I get they had the space for it. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the detective thing because my favorite moment I think ever of of the elongated man. Well, outside of JLA number two hundred, of course, um, <laughs> is in is in JLA two eighteen where they're trying to track Professor Ivo, and Ralph comes up with like he he studies all the the information they have because Ivo sent these robots out to kidnap athletes, and he like tr- does this triangulation, and he figures out that the Ivo you know that the plot is to steal people with of like enormous physical ability. And the rest of the Justice League is like, wow, Ralph, that's a really great piece of detective work. Good job. And he gets this thought balloon. And it's, of course, this is right after Batman left the team to join, to form Batman and the Outsiders. And he has this thought balloon. And you even see a a silhouette of Batman in the background where he says, you know, all these years I've been on the team with Batman have always been sort of circumspect about playing up my detective abilities because I felt like I was in the shadow of Batman. But now that he's gone from the team, I feel like I can offer the Justice League a lot more. Hmm. And that's like such a great little moment. And unfortunately, like it really never got followed up on because right after that was like the Beast storyline. And then of course, JLA Detroit. And they just never quite got back to that. But I love that little detail that I think that's such a great human moment that he's a great detective, but he's not Batman. And, And being on the team with Batman made him doubt himself i thought that was such a great and that's courtesy of jerry conway it's a great little moment that's fantastic oh i love this character so so much i mean he is <laughs> max this one this one's for you buddy he's plastic man plus two as far as i'm concerned he's that good so uh i absolutely love this character it makes me so happy now at this point in uh elongated man's time period he justice league europe number 23 was on the shelves which was the uh, who is crimson vox issue where they delve into her backstory and for more on elongated man you should check out the justice league international Bwahaha podcast where next episode we are going to cover justice league europe number one so we are diving into that era you could also watch the flash tv show did you know along get immense on the flash tv show now as a regular character i i didn't know that he was a regular but i knew that he's been put into live action yeah he like hang, he doesn't get a lot to do he sort of just like hangs out at star labs most of the time but he's he's there quite often so 
and of course, I should have said Mark Wade wrote the entry, and the border is red for hero. And first appearance is Flash, the first series, 112. Wow, 112. That's really early in the run. I didn't realize that because uh, didn't Barry like when the Flash series when Barry took over the the Flash title. He didn't start with number one. He started with like 100 and something, didn't he? When well, he 105, yes. Yeah. This is one year in, they had the elongated man. Wow, yeah, 1960. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yep. Yep. All right. Moving on is Felix Faust, nobody's favorite Justice League villain. And uh, this entry is by Craig Braswell, Braswell and Joe Rubenstein. Now, in the entry, uh, Faust is standing there. He's got his cauldron. He's got all these magical components floating around. He's got, you know, like a skull and uh, some, some vertebrae and a hand and all this goop floating around. He's basically casting a spell. And behind him is a plinth, and, and he's got like a Komodo dragon or something there. And he says, of course, his name, Felix Faust. Now, here's the thing that got me thinking, Rob. Braswell. So Braswell did this art, right? Do you remember what Braswell's been doing and who's who up to this point? The Outsiders listings. Exactly. And we know from Chris Franklin was telling us that the Outsiders, there was an attempt to launch a new Outsiders series about this time, which is why a lot of the Outsiders characters appear in Who's Who. It didn't work out. And we thought Braswell might be connected to that series. The interesting thing, though, is if you jump forward, I don't know how many years. It might be five years. It might be ten years. I really don't remember. There was another Outsider series. And one of the characters on the team was Felix Faust's son just called Faust. So I wonder if already at this point they had the idea of using Faust's son in the Outsiders or connecting Felix Faust to the Outsiders in some way, and that's why Braswell drew this. I don't know. It'd be interesting if, if someone out there knew. Love to hear about it, folks. Let us know. So uh, this version uh, – I, oh, um, I was going to say, you know, on, on the affiliations, uh, the group affiliation, they don't mention the Secret Society of Supervillains. What a ripoff. Hmm. That makes me unhappy. So this is the version of Felix Faust that was really featured heavily in the Secret Origins uh, issue. They talk about how he he's all tied in with Dr. Mist and Zatanna, this, this incarnation. And he, he was alive 7,000 years ago, and he fought the Dr. Mist 7,000 years ago. He ends up this, like this prisoner until the 1920s. Then he took control of somebody's body and made it his own. Of course, he fought the JLA a bunch of times. They actually acknowledge that he's very, very powerful and yet less than formidable. They actually refer to him as that, which is pretty true. I mean, hes I always call him the not-ready-for-prime-time player, uh, villain, JLA villain. And then someone always comes into the comments and goes, no, he appeared here and here and here. I'm really happy for you guys. But we're serious. <laughs> Nobody takes Felix Faust seriously. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> wow. Okay. Sorry. I'm shooting him down before they even write the comments. Uh, the inset picture. I kind of like the little class photo one where he's looking just kind of scowling with the, the little red design behind him. And, of course, the inset picture. He's got the famous JLA cover where he's got you know all the JLA figures on his fingertips. And then the, in, the other inset is, again, from Secret Origins where he's fighting Dr. Mist and Zatanna. Um, written by Mark Wade. Boy, he was really cranking him out this issue, wasn't he? And it's purple for Supernatural. You really could have gone villain, but it says Supernatural. First appearance, Justice League of America, number 10, March 1962. And uh, at this point, really, it had been two and a half years since he had been featured heavily, and that was in that Secret Origins issue, of course, covered in the Secret Origins podcast. But the month before this, he did make an appearance in Books of Magic, so kind of interesting. Just, I kind of forget about books like Books of Magic because I always kind of put them in the vertigo corner of my head. But, yeah, they were prime DC Universe at this point. So, yeah, pretty cool. And for more on Felix Faust, you can also check out Justice's First Dawn, which is a classic JLA podcast. Or there is an old blog called the JLA Satellite Blog where some nerd went through and chronicled every single issue of the Justice League. That does sound like a very nerdy thing to do. 
It does. It does. That guy's a complete loser. He, you know what? I think he gave up on it and went even nerdier and started supporting Aquaman. That's what he did. <laughs> you know what's way cooler? Going but, through who's who page at a time. <laughs> That's you know he stepped up in the world. So, all right. Speaking of cool, up next is the <laughs> no. I'm serious. Is the Global Guardians now? I. This, I love this piece, I, and you better say you do too, and if you don't, we're going to have problems. Um, it's got their Global Guardians uh, logo, which has got the Earth behind it, and it says Global Guardians. It's got all the characters sort of coming at you in a traditional sort of team hero style. It is drawn by Linda Medley and Art Adams. What an interesting combination. Uh, you've got all the characters here. Oh, gosh, do I have to say their names because I don't know all of them off the top of my head? <laughs> Bushmaster, Godiva, Impala, Jack-O-Lantern, Little Mermaid, The Olympian, Owl Woman, Rising Sun, Thunderlord, Tutor. Tara and Wild Huntsman. And interestingly enough, you don't get Fire or Ice or Green Flame and Ice Maiden, which, but uh, they a, moved uptown, right? So um, I think it's a really nice piece. I don't know. What do you think of this art? Oh, I know. I think this is a great piece too. I mean, first of all, I mean, art inked by Art Adams. You're already kind of halfway there, uh, and and Art Adams and Linda Medley make a nice combo because she had a very cartoony style, uh, and I think her stuff was maybe like a little loose maybe a little too loose. And then I think Art Adams kind of reins it in and kind of gives it a little more solidity. So this, like, this is what we've, we've talked about this for other entries where this looks like the presentation piece for the Global Guardians animated series. Oh, yeah. That's what you're this right. looks like. If you're trying to sell this to Hanna-Barbera, this is like, look at all these characters. We can go all around the world and we've got like an owl woman and there's a guy with a jack-o'-lantern and there's a guy with a th- third eye and a, you know. So, no, it looks really, it makes these characters look Really pretty cool, even though most of them are kind of not. <gasps> oh, well, they, they've really gotten good treatment all the way around. Eduardo Barreto did the original entry, which was nuts, which was pretty boss. That's a great listing, yeah. Now you've got these two doing it. Now, I didn't know Linda Medley, so I did a bunch of research. Um, maybe you already know all this stuff. She had done um, some DC work. She Before this, she had worked on Justice League Europe and Justice League America a little bit. And then she worked on Doom Patrol and she went over to Image. She even did some uh, – as a colorist on those. She even did a Dragon Magazine cover, which those are always gorgeous, which is pretty cool. But I, I, she goes on and – 1998, she won an Eisner for her own series called Castle Waiting, which she did under Olio Studios. So, I mean, she had this really lengthy career. She stopped doing comics around 2012 or so, and currently, she's uh, last last reported, she was working on some, uh, a series of graphic novels based on the original Wizard of Oz books. So, that seems I, like a good thing for her style. I can see that. Yeah, I, I just I didn't know you were familiar with her already. I was not. I, I loved this piece. It's so great. And you're right. Uh, the the Hanna Barbera piece of it is, I mean. The art is so clean and smooth. It's almost like a Ty Templeton kind of smoothness where it's it would translate really well to animation because it's all mm-hmm. clean lines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good good observation there, Rob. Uh, so I, I mentioned all the characters. Of, and they, the beauty of this series that everyone loves is that they premiered in Super Friends comic book, which is so cool. That the Super Friends, something from there, made it into the mainstream DC universe, which is great. And uh, they've been through a lot of trials and tribulations over the years. They pretty much got nixed when the Justice League went Justice League International. They, uh, they shut down the, the Global Guardians. But by this point, they had been reorganized and got back together. And they some of them had gone evil, like Jack-O-Lantern had gone bad. This is a new version of Jack-O-Lantern here. Anyway, they ended up helping the Justice League Europe, and uh, they're, they're on the side of, of right now because they had just uh, appeared about a year before this in the Justice League Europe annual number one. 
Now, my only criticism of this is you get little brief paragraphs about the characters, and the insets look great too, by the way, but you get little brief insets about the characters, but it just feels like it's lacking something cohesive to bring the whole entry together. It needed like a little more, I don't know, a little more oomph to finish the whole thing. It's written by Kevin Dooley, by the way, and um, of course you got Red for Hero Team around it, but uh, I I don't know, it needed a little bit more. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I maybe a conclusion. It doesn't have a conclusion. Like it, it has an intro, and then yeah. it lists all the characters, and it just stops. Uh, I do like the the detail though, and the the top picture mm-hmm. of of a bunch of heroes, and they're all posing like it's a yearbook photo, except yeah. for Bushmaster who's lighting a cigarette. Like, <laughs> he's he's the Wolverine of the group. Right. Well, and they're all without their masks too, which is pretty cool. Right. I didn't really think right. about that till now. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Uh, up next is Jan Ara, who probably just had Rob scratching his head going, who the hell is this? Uh, <laughs> uh, Rob's snoring is because, that's right, folks, it's a Legion of Superheroes entry, and specifically in the five-year-later format. So Rob just loves it because it's all dystopian and And it's all colors. grays and browns. So <laughs> exciting. So Jana Ra, though, is Element Lad, who's a really cool character. So, I mean, I, I will take the grays and browns over his bright hot pink costume, personally. Is drawn by Colleen Duran who uh, and, and Al Gordon. And Colleen Duran has an interesting history with Element Lad. I mean, she is really threaded throughout his life as a character in this time period. She really loves the character. In fact, there is a specific issue of the Legion of Superheroes which focuses just on Element Lad, drawn by Colleen Duran, but it's not for another 15 months. So a lot of the stuff that's laid uh, laid the seeds for here in this Who's Who entry doesn't pay off for over a year. So Janara, uh, again, Element Lad, the, the deal there is he's super crazy powerful. He can basically transmute, you know, one element into another. It's, a, it's almost a, like a Firestorm level power. And his species, uh, they their focus was spiritual fulfillment. That was the highest priority of their entire species. Well, unfortunately... You see where that got him. <laughs> Well, oh, what a jerk, man, because the next thing I'm about to say is they're all killed. Wow. <laughs> the space pirate named Roxas comes along, kills everyone on the planet. Jane is the only one to survive. And uh, he goes out. He wants to kill Roxas, but some of his friends talk him into not killing Roxas. He becomes very much sort of a, I don't know, the emotional heart of the Legion, I mean, to some extent. He's, he's sort of like the moral compass to some extent. And then when you get to the five-year-later era, Roxas comes back. And, dude, let me tell you. Keith Giffen and Tom Mary Beerbaum did some amazing stuff in the five-year-later era. I talk about it all the time. But Roxas especially, that dude was freaking terrifying. It was like when the Joker is written right and he's scary as hell. That's how this Roxas guy was written. He was terrifying. And, uh, and, and to Jan and Ra's te- uh, to, to testament to him, he had the opportunity to kill uh, Roxas, the man who murdered his entire planet. But he did not. He chose the, the right choice and let Roxas live. Which was great. Now, they also talk about here uh, his friend, Siobhan Aaron, who's a science police person, who they are sort of linked. Um, they're, let me see. Are they, are they romantically involved at this point? I can't really remember. I'm pretty sure they must be at this point. Anyway, um, here we go. His longtime companion. There we go. And they're, they're sort of dancing around it. And I really do think Tom and Mary Beerbaum are planting the seeds here. Fifteen months from now, they're going to reveal – sorry, spoilers, folks – that Siobhan Aaron, this woman that he's in love with – is actually a guy who's been taking this medicine to swap his gender. Because if I remember right, I think he wanted to live as a woman was simply the reason. And so when he transforms back to a man because he can't get the medicine anymore, basically he's worried Element Element Lad won't love him anymore. And Element Lad's like, I 
I don't care. I just love you for you. I don't care whether you're a man or a woman or anything. I just love you. It was a really wonderful story. And again, it seems like the seeds are planted here, and they don't pay off for a long time. So very impressive from Tom and Mary Beerbaum, the way they laid this out. Uh, they wrote that uh, the entry, obviously. That's actually the most interesting thing I've ever heard about Element Life. <laughs> It's a, oh, it's a great character, great series. So the inset pictures, you've got him in his original costume. Uh, I guess at his entry, you've got him standing outside the, the Legion clubhouse. And then you've got him in his later costume, which is a little cooler, which is like the pink and black one there. And um, interesting character. So, yeah. And if you want more on Element Lad, of course, check out the Legion of Super Bloggers. Or you can even go back and listen to the Who's Who podcast we did and uh, the Who's Who and the Legion. So, all right. Uh, oh, of course, his border's red, by the way. I should have mentioned that. First appearance is Adventure Comics number 307, 1963. Goodness gracious. All right, next entry. This is, this is what you've been waiting for, folks. Justice League of America by Adam Hughes and Carl Story. It's the cover entry. Now, this is a little bit different than the cover entry. The cover entry had this team shot, and in the background on the monitor, it said Justice League of America. Here on the background monitor, you see the Justice League Europe, folks. But uh, it's a great shot in the foreground. You've got Martian Manhunter smiling. You've got Maxwell Lord smiling. They're both kind of on each side. You've got, in the very foreground, Ice is forcing Guy Gardner to smile. She's actually forcing the corners of his mouth up to smile, which is adorable. And the main... Uh, the money shot, if you will, is Booster and Beetle holding up Fire, who's just like, you know, having a having a blast because she's the center of attention. And of course, that's what Fire wants to be, is the center of attention. And you have Elrond sort of on the side waving as well. This screams fun. This screams bwahaha. This screams, you know, why can't we have fun comics? You know, we've got the 5YL on the page before, which is all dark and gritty. Here's a way to have fun with your comics, folks. And again, in the background, the Serpent, just as we gear up, you get Captain Adam, you get Catherine Colbert. Oh, my heart throb, Catherine Colbert. Uh, Crimson Fox, Flash, who's sort of mugging there with, uh, with Power Girl, who's probably disgusted by him. You got Elongated Man and Rocket Red. So what, what do you think of this piece, buddy? I, I like it a lot. I think it's great. I mean, again, it's uh, Adam Hughes and stuff. I wish the colors were like a little more vibrant, like that background is just kind of this dull grayish thing. I wish it had been just a little more primary. But I like all the characters, I like the way they interact. I like the um the tones that Hughes puts on them, like uh, Maxwell Lord's jacket mm-hmm. and Elrond's robot body. It's got yeah. a, like a little bit of a duo tent. And it's yeah, yeah, I like the thing with ice and fire. And I love, love, love the insets on the back. The insets on the backs are phenomenal. Yes, the top one you've got uh all the teams sitting there they're 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 goofing around like fire sticking out her tongue. Beatles got on Mar- Groucho Marx glasses, and Booster's got a sign that says, I'm stupid. And it uh, looks like probably Max is giving them a lecture, and they're just bored out of their mind. And the bottom one is a tribute to the old Justice League. You've got, like, Black Canary. You've got Hawkman in the shadows in the background. And I don't know – I wonder if that's sort of a hint about um, – you know, Hawkworld, how he's removed now from continuity, at least at this point. Then you've got Green Arrow with, is that without his beard, it looks like? I think so. Marsh, everyone's very shadowy in the bottom one because it's sort of a tribute to what's happened before because you've got Gypsy there, so there's your nod to Just League Detroit. You've got Batman in the shadows. You've also got, uh, you know, but Mr. Miracle, who's a more recent character. It's really nice. Yeah, right. It's well put together. If you showed me that bottom, bottom one and told me it was Adam Hughes, I probably wouldn't believe you. It looks like uh, an exhibit at the Space Museum. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah. Yeah, I really uh, these both insets are are great. I I like I really love that one of the classic JLA. I just think looks they look suitably iconic. I think yeah. Really neat. 
Well, of course you love that. I mean, come on. Uh, then you get into the entry itself. It, it doesn't spend much time talking about the classic JLA. It really dives pretty quickly into the legend story and how the Justice League International was formed. They go through that whole process talking about how, uh, of course, the foundation, how it was formed, Maxwell Lord, the international status, you know, the Justice League and Justice League Europe, that kind of stuff. So it, it all lays it out very nicely. I'm not going to go through it too deeply because, I mean – Folks, just go listen to the Just League International podcast. It's all there every month for you. Uh, it is written by Mark Wade. I'm kind of surprised Kevin Dooley didn't step in as uh, the editor at that point to want to write it. But Mark Wade wrote the entry. And, of course, first appearance. Now, this is Justice League America or uh, Just League International, whichever way you want to call it. They say first appearance is Legends number 6, which, of course, is 1987, not that long ago. And, you know, I'm sort of surprised General Glory didn't make it into this entry because he premiered with the team two issues before this. Maybe he was a little too recent to end up in there, but general glory did become a big part of the series at this point. And I think when we get to these issues and cause like some people sort of roll their eyes when they hear about general glory, they're like, Oh, it was too silly. But really the, some of those stories are really good with the general. And it, it's, it's a playoff of captain America on purpose to tell sort of a, a story about it. And I, I think a lot of people are going to be surprised when we get to those issues. Um, interesting fact, inker Carl story, used to shop at the comic book shop I worked at. Hmm. So, At this point, Justice League America number 48 is the one on the shelves. And again, go to JLI Podcast for more information. Up next, Killer Croc, everybody's favorite Firestorm villain. That's right. I didn't stutter. I didn't mistake myself. Killer Croc was originally intended to be a foe of Firestorm, not Batman people. I'm not making that up. Uh, if you go back to Firestorm number 6... That because uh, Firestorm, you know, remember in the, in, the, in the Silver Age or the Bronze Age, the implosion had five issues on the shelves. They did do a sixth issue, and that never got printed officially, but you can find reprints of it. And it says next issue, the Reptile Man. And if you see the pages from issue seven, which a couple of them exist, Jerry Conway was putting Killer Croc into Firestorm, but the series got canceled. He put the character on the shelf and then pulled it back out to use with Batman. Look at that. Could have been a Firestorm villain. Unbelievable. So, I think that paid off for Jerry in the long run. It probably works better as a Batman film. That's true. Because if you look at Black Bison versus, say, I don't know, the Joker, who has a little more popularity? <laughs> okay, the Batman villain. I mean, they're basically the same, right? Anyway, uh, art here is by Mark Nelson. Now, I didn't know Mark Nelson immediately, so I had to look him up. At this point, he had done some backups in, like, Nexus and Airboy and stuff like that. But he really made a name for himself during the first Aliens miniseries over at Dark Horse, which was a phenomenal series. It was really, really good. And he'd done a few DC works by this point. Now, uh, the drawing is Killer Croc. Is you're, you're, in a, you're in a sewer. In the background, you see these alligators swimming around in the sewer because that's what they do, of course. And Croc has kicked in sort of a grating, and he's coming at you through the sewer grating. He's like, rah, very out there with his mouth. Now, this is the more humanoid vision, version of Killer Croc, where he basically was just a guy with greenish, scaly skin. You know, This is not the giant walking alligator that you see nowadays. So, I don't know. What, what do you think of this piece? I think it's okay. I don't think it's particularly it, – it's fine. I don't want to say anything too bad about it, but it's not terribly thrilling either. Yeah, and, and I think – I don't think it's so much Mark Nelson's fault. I think the character just wasn't that visually interesting at this point. Um, he really does become more interesting the more monstrous they make him, I think. So uh, they do talk about in here, of course, that David A. Gutierrez is going to love this. They talk about uh, everything that went wrong with Killer Croc is basically the state of Florida's fault. 
Uh, he grew up in the Florida slums. His, he was born out of wedlock. His aunt who raised him was an alcoholic. I mean, it's just pointing to all the things that are wrong with the state I live in. Uh, he's in and out of juvie uh, for years. He spends 18 years behind bars. He And when he finally out, he goes to carnivals and becomes an alligator wrestler. Decides that's not for him. And he ends up returning to crime and becomes a gangster. And... Um, the interesting thing here is they actually take time to describe in this entry scenes from Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum. I don't think Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum ever gets referenced anywhere except for here, which is really cool. Because, I mean, that was a you know really powerful piece, and it had come out about 15 months before this. So seeing that referenced here, I just thought that was pretty neat. Written by Peter Sanderson. Of course, the border is black. First appearance is Batman 357 in 1984. But really, it's Firestorm number 7 from 1978. <laughs> All right. For more on Killer Croc, you should check out the Batman Nightcast or the uh, Overlooked Dark Knight podcast, which is with our buddies Michael Bailey and Andrew Leyland. Of course, Nightcast is from the Fire and Water Podcast Network with our own Ryan Daly and Chris Franklin. All right. Up next is Major Force by uh, Pat Broderick. I love this. I think this is a great freaking piece. I keep saying this about Pat Broderick. He really uses all of this space. Like He gets this format of who's who. He uses every ounce of the page. And here it works really well. You've got Major Force in the foreground. He's, uh, he's raising this giant boulder. There's rocks crumbling down from the boulder actually hitting him on the head even and stuff like that. You see his body all sparkly and shiny because it's made of metal in the background. You see this forest with these really cool sort of Pacific Northwest, Northwest trees. I, I love this piece. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this character's never done a thing for me, but right. the visual is great. I, first of all, I do love the color scheme, magenta and orange. That's a nice color scheme you don't see a lot of. But yeah, Broderick just kills it. This is, it gives you everything about the heft. He's yeah, very, very strong, and it's just a dynamic piece. So yeah, Broderick makes this really work. Yeah, and the shadows, too. The shadow effects yep. on the body yep. is really, really great. And I like that the logo is actually behind his arm. I think yeah. it's a nice little touch. Boring logo, though, again. Hmm. Yeah, boring logo, yeah. Yep. So Major Force is basically Captain Adam's frenemy. And uh, very similar origin, you know, in the 1960s, he uh, got court-martialed, and the government said, tell you what, you can do the same project, exactly the same project Nathaniel Adam did, but a year later, we will sit you on this lump of alien metal and detonate a nuclear explosion right beneath you <laughs> and see if you survive. <laughs> And it catapults him to the 1980s by this quantum jump, and uh, he gets all these powers from it, and the government creates all this fake press talking about he's a hero. So, I mean, very similar to Captain Adam, except one minor difference. This guy is a complete psychopath. So, whereas Nathaniel Adam was a good good dude... This guy's totally off his rocker. So he works for the government as an operative, but he's incredibly mentally unstable. So he's got the villain border, even though technically he's a hero working for the government. So it's it's a it's an interesting precarious position that goes south later because he goes on to horrible things. I mean, you, you've you've heard about the whole women in refrigerators concept, uh, you know, about the mistreatment of, of female characters. It comes from this guy. Uh, he killed Kyle Rayner's mother and stuff oh, in the fridge. Oh, and it okay. all comes from Major Force. So uh, his powers are he's incredibly strong. He can project this solid matter. So rather than projecting energy, he projects actual physical matter. He's invulnerable. Um, the, one of the big differences between him and Captain Adam is he has no human form. You know, Captain Adam switches back and forth between a human and the silvery version. He doesn't have one. So kind of interesting. And this was written by Mark Wade again. The guy is really getting um, – maybe he gets paid by the word. I don't know. So Mark Wade <laughs> wrote the entry, and first appearance is Captain Adam number 12 from February 1988. Probably one of the 
the big additions to the Captain Adam mythos that doesn't come from Charlton. You know, like most of the stuff from Captain Adam has its beginnings in Charlton, but this is probably the first big one that didn't. So, and Captain Adam was on issue number 50 at this point, uh, rapidly approaching the end of its series. For more on Captain Adam and Major Force, you should check out the Silver and Gold podcast with our buddies Roy Cleary and Jay Jones, or you can check out Jay's uh, blog, Splitting Atoms, or if you want, uh, a couple of episodes ago on the JLI podcast, me and Martin Gray sat down and covered a whole bunch of issues of Captain Adam, so we talked a little bit about Major Force. Because I can't talk about the JLI podcast enough. All right, up next is New Genesis. Talking about the planet of the new gods. Next. Um, I'll give <laughs> Suddenly it. I long for the excitement of John Ara. <laughs> I'll give it a little more heft. All right, so it's it's head, our, 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 we love Ed Hannigan. It's his art with Will, Will Blyberg. It's fine. You've got, uh, in the foreground, there's this idyllic you know, field. You've got lots of new god little kids running around, I guess, with High Father. In the background, you can see Supertown, which is how you're, that's the appropriate way to say it, Supertown. So it's floating back there and has the new Genesis logo, of course. It is green for geography. The, the, one of the interesting things here, it actually listens two first appearances. Uh, I'd never seen that before, where they list two first appearances without differentiating them. And I guess it's because both of them were the same month. So I guess that's why they listed. Um, the gist that's even worth mentioning here, the deal is if you don't realize the new gods, when Jack Kirby came over from, from Marvel, he basically started with the idea of, you know, he'd been doing Thor all these years that he loved. He basically says the new gods origin starts with those Norse gods. It starts with his, essentially his version of Thor and it all gets blown up. And then when it comes back together, these are the new gods. So those were the old gods. These are the new gods. So it's almost like, hey, guys, you like my Thor work? Here's the next step. So it's supposed to be kind of connected. Isaiah is the high father, of course. You know, my, my favorite aspect of, the, of New Genesis is uh, Supertown. It's this floating city in orbit. And uh, I, I just love that idea. And, uh, you know, of course, all the hippy-dippy forever people from there. But uh, one, one thing they do mention in the entry here is that in the future – New Genesis will be destroyed, and they, they will go on to live in Supertown. I, 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 don't, I guess that's in a story somewhere where they're like, you know, your, your planet's going to blow up in the future. I don't know. Whatever. Written by Peter Sander, uh, Sanderson, and uh, the inset pictures, you've got uh, the picture of New Genesis with the – well, because it's a geography thing. It's a planet. Then you get uh, – oh, gosh, I can't even remember the guy's name. I think it's the, one of the guys who invented the boom tube. And then you get uh, High Father looking over the source with that. I think that's I think that's him on. I believe. I think you're right. Yes. And then you get the source where the, the creepy finger is writing the source on the wall, which is very very weird. All right. Uh, for more on the um, on New God stuff, check out the Kirby Cast. So we're just gonna keep rolling here, because up next is Oberon, another logo which is sort of boring, except I find it hilarious because Oberon is a little person and his logo is freaking huge and takes up the top half of the page. I just think that's very funny. Art here is by Joe Phillips and Bob Dvorak. Now, Joe Phillips was drawing the Mr. Miracle book, which is why you get Oberon's entry drawn by him. You've got Maxwell Lord sitting there looking a little harangued with his hand, like, rubbing his neck. And Oberon is standing on a stool so he can look at Max almost eye to eye and is just berating him. He's just, he is giving Max the business. And behind them you see uh, Scott Free as Mr. Miracle. You see Barda. You see Shiloh, the new Mr. Miracle. And you see... Uh, General Glory actually he makes an appearance here, and I think it's a I think it's a fun piece. I don't know. I, it's interesting they put the the checkerboard tile on the ceiling when I'm pretty sure the JLI was always famous for having the checkerboard floor. But I don't know. What do you think of this one? Uh, 
<laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. Yeah, I will say it took me numerous times looking at this before I noticed that there were two Mr. Miracles. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of this one. Okay, I like it. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's not extraordinarily dynamic. The art is fine. The proportions are fine. I love Oberon standing on the stool, so I think it's fine. I, again, it's not flashy, exciting, like Major Forces entry, but I think I don't think there's anything wrong with it. All right, so uh, I, I do like the inset pictures. They've He sort of replicated the cover to JLI number 23, where Oberon goes all Rambo. I love that. And you've got him uh, crying over the dead body of Thaddeus Brown, who was the previous Mr. Miracle. And then you've got him as the JLI monitor duty. So the gist is, you know, Oberon, as I said, he's a little person. He ended up in a circus and ended up eventually as an assistant to Thaddeus Brown, the original Mr. Miracle. There he meets Scott Free. Thaddeus dies. Scott Free becomes the new Mr. Miracle, and Oberon becomes his assistant. Of course, they meet Big Bard and stuff like that. But the best thing about this entry is they talk about his powers. Under powers, they talk about how he is quick thinking. He is a down-and-dirty street fighter. They call him uh, Billy Go Gruff as his personality, or Billy Go, Billy Go Gruff personified. I like that. And how he is irresistible to women. And uh, they really hit home, too, how his family is now Scott and Barda and the JLI. That makes me very happy. And it's written by Kevin Dooley, and um, first appearance is Mr. Miracle, number one in 1971, and the border is supporting cast blue. I would argue it could be red. But anyway, where do you think you could hear more about Oberon, Rob? Uh, uh, the Kirby cast, maybe? JLI podcast, jerk. <laughs> All right, up next is The Parasite, and I love this entry. It is by Chris Wozniak and Scott Hanna. you got The Parasite. He's in this alley, and he's just draining the life out of this guy who's either a bum or just a rocker. I don't know who it is. And Parasite, is he's got his hands. Just the way I just love the shoulders and the way they're coming down, and he's got his hands on the guy's face, and he's just absorbing him. And Parasite has this enormous, like, heckler-style smile, and I just think it looks great. The, the logo, again, weak, but I love Love the parasite look. I don't know what do you, with the black border around the orange crackle and everything. I think it looks great. Um, I like the the pose and everything else. Uh, the one thing I I'm not a fan of in in comparing this one with the original version, the mm-hmm. historical version, yes. is the the one in the purple costume. Like uh, though, I guess it was Neil Adams who designed it. Maybe Kurt Swan. I'm not sure. Um, but like he his face was indistinct. Like he had a hood on. So you just saw like shadows of his eyes and over his mouth, and this is much more defined. And so to okay. me, he just looks like a bald Hulk or basically Martian Manhunter. Um, I like the purple, yeah, or yeah, the purple version. I just find just kind of creepier looking because he he looks like if he was talking, it would kind of sound all muffled because he's hmm. got like cloth over his mouth. That's interesting. Okay, I'll give you that. All right. Yeah, this is definitely the post-crisis version. He is green. That's one of the big differences. A lot of people get hung up on that. Weirdos. But um, pretty much at this point, believe it or not, he was just a Firestorm villain. Like, you know, you, when you think of Parasite, you automatically think Superman because that's really what he's, he's – he is, a Superman villain. But at this point, they, he, he got introduced in post-crisis in Firestorm, and he was a, a janitor essentially at Star Labs. And he convinced himself that these radioactive waste canisters – he convinced himself that Star Labs was actually trans, uh, transporting their payroll in these, dumps, in these canisters. So he decides to steal one, and he opens it. Well, Darkseid steps in. This is during the Legends era, so he decides he wants to really manipulate things. So he, Darkseid sort of kick-starts this radioactive waste, which then causes this guy, Rudy, to become the Parasite. And, of course, we all know his powers. He gets close to super-powered people. He can absorb their powers. He gets close to humans. He can absorb their life force. Uh, one of the things they talk about here is how whenever he absorbs somebody's uh, powers or abilities or whatever, he absorbs their memory, memories as well. And at this point, the, these memories are slowly driving him insane. 
So, and he's fought Firestorm a whole bunch of times here, and he keeps draining Firehawk's powers, where they almost make fun of it in the entry. They say, you know, Firehawk again lost her powers to him. It's just, it was almost like they're flipping the bird to Firehawk. Poor Firehawk. And, um, you know, at this point, Firestorm had been canceled six months ago, so Parasite literally wasn't appearing anywhere, and of course he would become a Superman foe very, very quickly again. In fact, Action Comics was on issue number 662 at this point, uh, the same month, which is where Lois finds out about that Clark Kent is actually Superman, which was a huge, huge thing. So for more on the Parasite, oh, I should mention, by the way, it's written by Robert Greenberger, and of course the book is black for villain. For I, liked it. I do like that it mentions uh, under Powers of Weapons that the Parasite usually blunders into a fight without thinking. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, original first appearance was Action Comics number 340 from 1966. The modern appearance is Firestorm number 58 from 1987. Now, how how on earth, Rob, did I almost end this entry without talking about the inset pictures? Because one of them, he's fighting Firestorm, the elemental Firestorm. How awesome is that? And the other picture, he's fighting the Will Payton Starman. This is everything you like. Everything I like on one page. Exactly right. So for more on Parasite, the, probably the best places to go would be anything we cover with Firestorm. So listen to the Aquaman and Firestorm podcast. Also, from Crisis to Crisis, because of course there's lots of Parasite coverage over there. Our buddy Michael Bailey is sure to get on that. All right, up next, speaking of From Crisis to Crisis and Superman stuff, it is Perry White. It's this great shot of Perry White standing there with his arms crossed, and he's got a paper stuffed under his elbow, and he's standing in front of the giant globe of the Daily Planet, and Superman is flying up behind him, and the lighting is such a way that the Superman shield, the S-shield, the red is visible, but the yellow is gone just with black, which looks really kind of striking. This is drawn by Dan Jurgens and Dennis Janke. What do you think of the image? Oh, I think it's great. I, I think this is uh, the, the pose, the, I mean, the, the staging, uh, which I have to assume is the work of Dan Jurgens, is flawless. And I think this is a great way of making a character with not a lot of visual appeal look exciting. Because yeah. by bringing in Superman in the background, you're, you know, you're telling everybody, okay, he's sort of, you know, what cast he belongs to. Uh, the up angle is great. The Daily Planet, you know, uh, logo is great. Now, I think it's just, this is a really great way of of bringing something to life that's probably could be pretty dull. Yeah, it's, a, it's an exceptional piece. It's, and you're right, it's all in the staging. It's really, really well, really well done. So the, the history of Perry White they get into here um, is, you know, he grew up in Suicide Slum, very, very poor. It turns out he was friends with Lex Luthor when they were kids. And then he worked his way up at the Daily Planet. And at one point, Lex Luthor actually owned the Daily Planet, and uh, which Perry White couldn't stand once he found out how horrible Lex was. In fact, uh, this whole awkward thing where Lex gets Perry an assignment on the other side of the world. So Perry goes over there while he's gone. He convinces his girlfriend, Alice, that Perry is dead. And Lex Luthor actually seduces Alice, Perry's girlfriend, eventually wife, and actually fathers a child, which Perry thinks is his own for a number of years, which is really awkward. Later on, uh, you know, of course, Perry comes back. The paper gets bought. Perry becomes the managing editor and becomes, you know, chief that we all know. And um, there's, again, they talk a lot about the, the son, Jerry, who ends up dying horribly. We talked about that in a previous episode as well. So Perry White, your classic, you know, don't call me chief kind of guy. Uh, this entry is written by Roger Stern, the amazing Roger Stern, who had an amazing run on Superman, which was so good. At this point, on this, I, I told you what the Action Comics issue was just a moment ago. The Adventures of Superman issue was number 476 on the shelves the same month, which is the beginning of the Time and Time Again storyline, which was awesome. Such a great period to be a Superman fan. And again, for Perry White, uh, you should check out the From Crisis to Crisis podcast. His first appearance, by the way, I should have mentioned, Superman number 7, dude, 1940. Can you believe that? So would that have meant that Perry White was the boss of the Daily Star, I guess, at that point? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay. And then you get, of course, his more modern version is from Man of Steel number two, and he's blue for supporting cast, which is great. Up next is the hottest Legionnaire, and no, I don't mean Sunboy because he's hot. I mean it is Phantom Girl, folks. Except it's not really Phantom Girl, it's Phase. It gets complicated. Just stick with me. So it is uh, Legion, the acronym Legion, L E G I O N, and the character is named Phase, and the art is by Kevin McGuire and Dick Giordano. And it is, I'm just going to keep calling her Phantom Girl because that's who she is. It's Phantom Girl phasing through a wall, but she's wearing her Legion costume, which is really, I just find this sexy as hell. It's a, it's a black leotard with white sort of highlights in different in spot, it's piping and stuff. And over that, she's got sort of a white, almost like a sweatshirt kind of thing with the Legion logo on it. And her hair is back, pulled back in a ponytail. She's beautiful. She's sexy. She's everything. So I don't, what do you think of this piece? Oh, it's I mean it's great. Of course, it's Kevin McGuire, of course. But I love again. It's another one that's staged really well. Like you get the sense you're catching right in mid transformation or oh, yeah. whatever phasing. Yep. Uh, hence the name. So no, I love the movie because the way her hair is sort of like flowing. Like it's really like it's almost like a still from a movie. Uh, I think it's a great shot, and I like this costume. I actually think more superheroes would wear hoods. I think it's probably like pretty useful. Uh, so I think it makes a lot of sense, like Spider Gwen and stuff like that. I think yeah. it's a very useful kind of thing to have as a custom. So I actually really like this listing. All right, I'm I'm glad you said that because Phantom Girl has always been my favorite Legionnaire, and I think she is absolutely the hottest Legionnaire as well. So, um, which is important because all the Legion folks like to argue about who's the hottest Legionnaire. So this gets complicated. All right, so yes, she is Phantom. She's Tina Wazoo, and she is from the 30th century, the, the traditional Phantom Girl origin where she grows up on this planet, she ends up on Earth, she joins the Legion, she falls in love with Ultra Boy, they have this great relationship. Here's where it gets complicated. There is this evil entity, magical entity, sort of Mordru level, named Glorith, and she is pissed as hell at Ultra Boy. So what she does is she decides to punish him, and, and she also needs to hold back Mordru, who's like her enemy. And so she actually swaps this character from the 20th century and a character from the 30th century. She swaps them. So she takes from the 20th century this Durlin, who is a member of the Acronym Legion, and she then takes Phantom Girl from the 30th century and sends her back to the 20th century. So the Durlin comes to the 30th century and actually becomes R.J. Brand, who forms the Legion. And she goes back in time, loses her memory, doesn't know who she is, but she knows she can walk through walls and things like that. She ends up with the Acronym Legion team with Vrildox, and she becomes FaZe. Now, I know there's all you Legion fans at home screaming and ranting about, no, 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 she's not Phantom Girl, she's her cousin, and this retcon upon this retcon upon this retcon, blah, 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 blah. We all know she was supposed to be Phantom Girl, and that's that. Let's not screw around with all the, the retcons they did later to try and explain it away. We know she's supposed to be Phantom Girl. I don't care what they said later. She's Phantom Girl. We're just going to stick with that. So this piece is written by Mark Wade, uh, which is kind of interesting. I figured it would have been written by the writer of the Acronym Legion series or at least Tom and Mary Beerbaum, but, you know, whatever. And we've already talked about the art. And first appearance is Action Comics number 276. And um, Legion, the Legion comic at this point was on uh, Legion 91 was the name of the, of the series because they changed the name every year. Legion 91, issue number 24. So for more, you can check out the Legion of Super Bloggers, which is great, or the Secret Origins episode where we talked about how awesome Phantom Girl was because Ryan was smart and had me on that episode. All right. Next one, Rob. This is a winner as far as I'm concerned. And if you say otherwise, it's the end of our friendship. It is Shade the Changing <sighs> Man. I'm tired it, of you drawing all these boundaries all the time, I have to say. Go find a new best friend if you don't like this, okay? Anyway, Shade. Can do. 
this is the Peter Milligan shade, folks. It is, uh, and to be more exact, it is the Chris Bacalo and Mark Pennington shade. It's sitting there in an electric chair. And uh, he's in a field of all these Uncle Sam hats. And he's got on his crazy Technicolor coat. This is – oh, this piece is so striking. Please, please don't tell me you're about to poop on this drawing. Tell me about it. Why do you keep saying that? I've been, like, enormously positive through this whole issue. And That's every issue, you're like, oh, don't crap on this one. Like, <laughs> I haven't done that yet. I said one nasty thing about Jan Ara. But the rest of them, I, I even just said something really nice about a Legion member four minutes ago. That's true. Okay. So tell me how much you love this one, then. Jeez. I'm okay on this one. Oh, no. you son of a bitch. Uh, yeah, there we go. You walked in. A, no, this is great. Mark Chris Bachelow and Mark Pennington. I mean, of course, I have a soft spot. For the Mark Pennington Inc. Shade Changing Man, because I helped spot blacks on the book back in the day. That's right. Um, yes, yes, yes. I helped with the pages. Used to watch Mark's brother, Mitch, pick them up at lunch and drive them into the D.C. offices when Mark was particularly behind. Um, no, this is great. This is a really uh, neat way of taking an old concept, because, of course, this was a 70s book, and which it mentions, the Steve Ditko version, and updating it and, you know, making – keeping kind of the basic concept and giving it a fresh coat of paint. I think it's terrific. And it makes me so happy you said that. And I forgot. That's right. You did spot some blacks in Shade the Changing. Oh, like, yeah. We <sighs> did a lot of spotting blacks. Mark was always behind, it seemed. I love this book so much, and it's and th- th- this is one of the great things about this era of Who's Who in 1990 specifically. We are on the cusp of the creation of Vertigo, but we're not there yet. So there's a lot of Vertigo stuff in here now. Doom Patrol at this point was weird, but not like insanely as weird as it'll get. Shade the Changing Man was weird as hell out of the gate. I mean, that is a funky, weird ass comic, and it's awesome. And it had no business being in the DC universe, and yet seeing a Shade entry right next to Phantom Girl, that is so freaking cool. Oh. So uh, the entry is fantastic. On the back side, you talked about Steve Ditko. It does list him as credited. Here's here's the gist, here's the gist of the character. If you're not from there, because Shade is another one, another Steve Ditko creation, sort of like the Creeper, which is kind of hard to wrap my head around a little bit. But I, I I got there eventually. In this version, at least, you've got Rack Shade. He's from this other dimension, or you know, wherever. Uh, is it a world or a dimension? It's other dimension. Okay, they called yeah, Meta. Dimension, yeah. Yep. And Meta is linked to Earth somehow through the Madness Zone. And Shade is this, like, really kind of sensitive and emotional kid. And as he grows up, he gets assigned – and they actually try to take that out of him. Uh, and he gets assigned to the job of being a changing man or also called a mind agent. And he's sent to Earth. And with the, the way it works is, again, the Madness Zone is the link between Earth and Meta. So his body sits there in the Madness Zone and his brain is astral projected to Earth and inhabits the body of a guy who's dying. Well, and that way he can take over that body. Well, it turns out the guy he's taking over, his name is Troy Grenzer, and he is a convicted murderer being sentenced to the electric chair. And as he dies in the electric chair, that's when Shade goes into the body. So it doesn't go well for him. Uh, so the body, so Shade's real body is sitting in the madness zone wearing this thing called the M-Vest or the Madness Vest. And Shade on Earth in this new body can sort of access those powers but not completely. And the powers is he, he is able to distort people's perceptions of him. And what that means, and it's all tied to their emotional state. And what that means is, like, if he's you know very aggressive or something like that, people might see his head being giant with ferocious teeth, or they might see his hand being really enlarged and distorted. And um, and there's other powers that come with it, like levitation and stuff like that. So I, I always struggled to understand what Shade's powers were, like when he was in Suicide Squad and stuff like that. So I, I get it a little bit better here. It's all tied to madness. And in the story, he ends up becoming friends with this woman named Kathy George. They become 
an amazing couple. And the sad part is Kathy George's parents were actually murdered by this Troy Gretzner guy. So the body he's in is the one that murdered her parents, which is just freaky, absolutely freaky. And the first storyline that really hit it big for, for Shade was called The American Scream, which was so good, which is why you've got all the Uncle Sam hats in that field there. Such a great series. It, uh, the series was only on issue at number eight at this point. It was still early days. The backside, you've got this nice, you know, class picture of Shade. You've got him, uh, you've got him and Kathy there. You've got The American Scream. You've got him appearing in, well, he's, uh, the other guy's in the electric chair. Uh, such a great series. Peter Milligan. Wow, what a, what a talent. What a great, great series. And, um, and again, I'm enjoying Shade the Changing Girl because it really picks up on a lot of these same concepts. And I know I just talked a whole hell of a lot about Shade. Sorry. I, obviously, I love it. <laughs> I think that is obvious, yes. And, and uh, you know, it's, there's no podcast or anything to direct you to that I know of about Shade. I mean, of course, you could, watch, you could, you could listen to the Task Force X podcast by our buddy Aaron Head Moss because Shade – the the Ditko version of Shade was a member of the team, but this pretty much, if I remember right, this that never happened really with this version of Shade. It just is not part of his past. So, all right, up next are the Tweeds. The Tweeds, not to be confused with Shannon and Tracy. Sorry, folks. No, this is Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Uh, I love how they're called the Tweeds. That is funny. Uh, it is by Norm Brayfogle, and they are Tweedledee and Tweedledum are back to back. And one has one looks a lot like the penguin, actually. He's got the top hat and the cane, and he's overweight. And the other one's got sort of the beanie and the striped shirt. And the logo's kind of fun. It's got like a sort of double effect going on there because it's Tweedle. They're both called Tweedle, Tweedle, and then D and Dumb, which looks really nice. What do you think of this Brayfogle piece? I love it. Yeah. Love it, love it, love it. I love the way Bray Fogel. I mean, we all love Norm Bray Fogel. Rest in Absolutely. peace. Absolutely. Uh, but, but also the fact that he was able to take two incredibly doofy looking villains <laughs> and make them look scary. Uh, I love the logo treatment with all the, like, the filigrees. Like, it's like a, like, almost like an invitation or something. All okay, that's yeah. weird. And then they're standing there back to back with these evil grins on their face. And then there's, you've got this ink spatter. Uh, background uh, pattern in the background, which of course is reminiscent of blood without being blood. I didn't even uh, pick up on that. Well done. Yeah, that's really cool. You know how you know how you get that effect? Uh, you splatter ink, right? But you know how you do it? You, you flick a brush. I don't really know. There, yeah, you. Uh, the way we learned to do it is you dip uh, ink in a paintbrush in a, a toothbrush. Toothbrush. You, okay. Yeah, you flick it with your with your thumb, and it gives you that spritz effect. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. But yeah, no, this is. I love this piece because it's, again, it's it's just some of the kind of a stupid Batman villains yeah. made to look really really cool. So I, I dig it a lot. Well, the front makes up for the lack of stuff on the back because there's for two characters nothing. they have very very little text, which is so weird because they've been around since 1943 and there's two yeah. of them. You think they'd have enough to fill this thing, but yeah. but apparently Peter Sanderson wasn't getting paid by the word, so there's pretty much just one column of text here, and that's about it. Uh, they talk about how this is their cousins. I thought they were identical twins. I didn't know they were cousins. So um, not kissing cousins. Don't be confused. Anyway, so um, not a lot to talk about. I mean, they're they're designed to look like the uh, the characters from what Alice in Wonderland, I think, I think it is, right? Or through the Looking Glass, and um, they they commit crimes, and Batman beats them up. That's the gist of it. So the, the front's really where, where the money's at. <laughs> There's a great story uh, with them from the '40s. I don't think it's their first story, but it's it, and it was reprinted in the um, one of the Batman Treasuries that I covered on Treasury Cast, and mm-hmm. it's Tweedledum and Tweedledee run for mayor, oh and goodness. like they're clearly crooks, and they get voted in anyway. So. <laughs> It's uh, a little, little bit a little, of a very early commentary. Foreshadowing. Yeah, look at that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> first appearance again we said it in 1943 detective comics number 74 and uh, of course the border is black so now the uh tweedledee and tweedledum had recently appeared in batman number 456 just three months ago so and for more on them you should check out the batman nightcast again here right here in our network because they are going to cover that era up next is Wonder Woman's supporting cast. Oh, thank goodness this made it in. Uh, <laughs> God, it's like it's the era of Wonder Woman. Anyway, I, I should be nice. Oh, All right. Boy, now uh, we're going to get an angry letter from Frank. Uh, no, we're not. Frank doesn't like this era of Wonder Woman at all. So, uh, it, It's written by Mark Way. The art is by Chris Mar- uh, Marinin and George Perez. Because, you know, Chris Marinin took over a lot of the Wonder Woman art duties when George Perez was just writing the book. And so, I mean, per- Marinin is, is a competent artist. Uh, Perez is a great inker, obviously. It's the characters hanging out in the living room. You know, Wonder Woman's there, which is kind of nice. Everyone else is just sort of there, hanging out, sitting on a couch or whatever. And pretty much these are a bunch of – other than Steve Trevor and Eddie Candy. These are a bunch of supporting characters that John Byrne totally torpedoed when he took over the book a couple years later and replaced them with carbon copies that he could say he created. Is basically what happened. Uh, oh wow, I didn't know that. Seriously, well, I mean, if you look at it, like you get Julia. Uh, oh, I can't say this guy's Capitellus and her daughter yeah. Vanessa. Um, Cassie Sandmark, who goes on to be Wonder Girl, is basically just the same as Vanessa. And her mother, her aunt, or whatever, is almost exactly the same as as Julia. I mean, they're, to me at least, on the surface, they seem so similar. I'm sure if you dig deep, yes, there's differences. But, I mean, it's there, there's so much crossover there. It's just like, really, you couldn't have made Vanessa Wonder Girl? You, oh, John, you wanted to say created by. I get it. Okay. So it's kind of a, a dick move by, by John Byrne. But, um, you know, the, the stuff that kind of I found interesting, they talk about Steve Trevor, how his mother's name is Diana, and how she crashed – during World War II on Paradise Island, and they nursed her back to health. And actually, Diana, our Diana, Wonder Woman, is named for Steve Trevor's mom, so that's kind of interesting. And in this version, of course, Steve Trevor and Wonder Woman never had a romantic relationship. In fact, Steve Trevor's with Etta Candy. So um, at this point, Wonder Woman was on issue number 52. And for more on Wonder Woman, of course, you, you know, go see the movie, which is great. Or, you, you know, Frank's got his uh, Diana Prince podcast, which is not about this era, but, you know, it's worth definitely checking out. <laughs> And because uh, it's Frank, it's always fun. So. And that, I, go ahead. I, well, I just I want to mention. I did. I did want to mention one of the little lines here about Ed in Delicato. Okay. From Wonder Woman number fifteen, and it says, <laughs> "What Diana doesn't realize yet is that Delicato has a slight crush on her, one that could turn into a stronger relationship if he weren't constantly challenging her idealistic attitudes and beliefs." <laughs> so, like right now, I think you could probably find Ed on Twitter mansplaining lots of things to women. Oh I my god, <laughs> <laughs> that is probably true. I think you're absolutely right, and uh, I'm glad you ended that on a positive note because that's the end of the issue, folks. Oh <laughs> uh, wow. Okay, so Rob, I'm going to ask you. Um, oh, of course. You, you, by the way, you get the back cover, which is nice because. The back cover features uh, the Aqualad entry and the Elongated Man entry, which is mm. kind of cool. So, Rob, what are your favorite entries in this issue? I ask you every time, so you better be prepared. Uh, well, certainly Aqualad, um, Creeper. Yes. Uh, elongated Man, uh, I would say. Um, I really like the uh, 
Phantom Girl, Phasm, or Phase, whatever you call her, uh, and Tweedledum, Tweedledee. I'd say those okay. are my favorites. We've got a couple of repeats there. Phase and Creeper are both on my list. Creeper's probably my second favorite. My number one favorite is the Shade Entry. I just think the Shade Entry knocks the whole damn thing out of the park. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, yeah, Phase, Creeper. Uh, Major Force, I think, is also an exceptional one. I think Justice League America is great. If I didn't put them on the list, I might be boycotted from my own show. And uh, then the Global Guardians Entry, I think, is really, really Oh, yeah, nice. that was really good, too. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. Yep. So that is this entry, folks. That is Who's Who number seven in the books. So we are going to take a quick podcast promo break. When we come back, we're going to do your listener feedback from the last episode. Don't call them babes. Definitely don't call them broads. But can we call them birds? Welcome to Feathers and Foes, a Birds of Prey podcast where we are celebrating the tales of the Femme Fatales. Superman flies above you. Aquaman rules below you. But the birds stand with you. Feathers and foes. I'm your host, Ashford. And in the studio with me is... Hello. Black Canary? Wait a minute, what did you do with Leah and Mark? Did you just call me a broad? No, I said don't call them babes, don't call them broads. So you're saying I'm not a babe? No, yes, I don't know. I I don't see you as some object. I see you as a well-rounded character with her own wants, desires, and agency. Stop saying buzzwords, hoping to gain a female audience. Canary, how dare you question my sincerity? That's Black Canary to you. Do you want me to plug your show or not? Please plug my show, Miss Canary. You can contact Ashford, Leah, or Mark on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at Feathers and Foes. You can also email them on the website feathersandfoes.libsyn.com. In addition to all of this, you may subscribe to them on iTunes. Just go to the search option and type Feathers and Foes. Welcome to the world of tomorrow! The Legion of Superheroes through the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Baxter series, five years later, the reboot, the three-boot, the retro-boot, the animated series. We have banded together as the Legion of Super Bloggers to cover it all. Seek us out at legionofsuperbloggers.blogspot.com. always have to say it that way. Haven't you ever heard of a little thing called showmanship? Welcome back, folks, for Who's Who, How's, and Why's. I should mention, before we get rolling here, though, if you get a chance, go out to our website. What's that website, Rob? Firewaterpodcast.com. And you can find a couple of gallery posts from these, uh, this issue. We'll show some of the images. I'm not going to post as many as I used to because now they're putting Who's Who a Comicsology. I don't want to really tick off DC. And by the way, Rob told me not to cover this on the show because he figured after seven years you guys have figured this out. But I thought, you know what? Maybe we have a new listener this month. Could happen. So, as we get into this, folks, uh, we are going to cover your iTunes reviews. And remember, as a personal thank you from Rob Kelly to you, we will read your entire iTunes review on the show. Starting with that, Rob, why don't you kick us off? Uh, yeah, we got a, a list. Of, a, a, I'm sorry, review. It says, "Who's awesome in the podcast universe?" Very clever by Mike Kramer, aka Gold Dragon. He says, "I jumped into Who's Who with the 1990 Binder series." Rob and Chag did a great job running through the first issue, and as I really only just started listening, I'm binging the series now with my two binders on my desk. I currently have them bound in issue order, covers, and all. The blue binder has issues 1 to 9, and the second binder is 10 to 16, plus the updates. Those are really hard to find nowadays, by the way. Although, when they first came out, I often bought several copies to make special files of specific groups and families. Batman, Superman, Flash, Justice League, etc. Wow. Boy, DC wow. loved him. This series <laughs> was my introduction to the DCU. 
Uh, prior to this, I'd only been reading Star Trek, published by DC at the time, and the Bat books following the death of Robin. You're welcome. And the Batman 1989 movie. It helped me get to know the DC universe as it currently stood, so that I started buying more. As I started buying more and more comics and different series, I wasn't lost as I would have been if I was coming in cold. I agree with Rob somewhat on missing out on the obscure characters from the then 54, 55 years of DC history. However, as I had several comic shops in my area at the time, I was always able to go back and buy the original Who's Who to get that pre-crisis information. Sometimes you just got to go with the back issues. Awesome job, guys. Well, thank you, Mike. That's a great review. Yeah, it's wonderful. He's been binging a lot of our shows lately and leaving comments, which is great to have him as part of the family. And it sounds like he's single-handedly the reason that uh, those early Who's Who issues went back for a second printing. Yeah. Way to go, Mike. <laughs> So, folks, please go out to iTunes and leave us a review. It really helps raise the profile of the show. And more people find us every month because of those iTunes reviews. So we would really appreciate it. Um, if you've left a review on the Fire & Water podcast many, many years ago when Who's Who was part of that feed, uh, please consider going over and leaving a, a review on the Who's Who specific feed. We'd really appreciate it. All right. Now, we are going to be pulling your feedback from Who's Who issue number six coverage we did, mainly from our website, the comments there, and your emails. Now, just as a reminder, going forward, we're only pulling the website comments, uh, the iTunes reviews, and the emails. We're not going to be pulling all the comments from social media. It just – it really – it became too much. We're so sorry. It's it's such a – people love – it's not Rob and I they love. They love Who's Who, let's face it. But you guys love it so much. There's so much to share, uh, and so we, we just can't – pull all of those comments from there. So please go out to our website. That's really where the active conversation is going on. Now, we will still thank all the folks that shared and retweeted the show on Facebook and Twitter at the end, as usual, but it's just the comments themselves are going to come from the website. And how many comments are there, Rob? 88. 88. Now, if it was miles per hour, we'd be going through time right now, folks. There's that many comments. And here's the best part. 20% of these comments, no exaggeration, I did the math, I had to use a calculator and everything, 20% uh, of these comments are specifically related to ciscoid. Uh, ciscoid did a dissertation on the weight of female breasts. So <laughs> thank you for that contribution, ciscoid. Canada chimes in. All right. Uh, when do you, you kick us off here, Rob? Yeah. <laughs> he was really willing to plant a flag in that hill. Uh, anyway, yes, our comments from Siskoid from our network, who does Ohamu Not, the upcoming Zero Hour, Give Me That Star Trek, and much more. He says, nitpicking department. I know the story Rob means with Mike Mignola artwork and Superman in a spacesuit. It's Superman issue spinning out of action number 600, the last team-up issue. The Hawks take soups to the asteroid field that was Krypton, and he has visions of its history. The spacesuit in the Fortress of Solitude is actually the armor he wore in Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite when Red K made him lose his powers temporarily. Thank you, Siskoid. I knew I hadn't made that story up. I just couldn't recall where I saw it. <laughs> and I knew that the armor was from Crisis of Krypton. Crisis. Yeah, Crisis of Krypton. I can't even say it. Crimson Kryptonite, because that was actually the storyline that got me reading the Superman books on a regular basis. So that's why I know it so well. So then, yes, we last issue we talked about Amazing Grace and Power Girl, both of which are known for certain attributes. Um, they're both very chesty folks, and. We also were discussing the weight figures in Who's Who because some of the weights are just absolutely ridiculous. And the conversation came up, how much does a breast weigh? Which was just kind of a funny little thing because Rob and I just riff off each other. We do silly stuff. Siskoid brought the science, folks. He comes in here. <laughs> does uh, does breast size affect weight all that much? Not as much as you might think. Uh, as this is a frequent discussion on one of his shows. I'm assuming it's Ohatma or not. And uh, he had the scientific research done 
So you actually list out the weight of breasts in uh, by the bra size. So let's just pick uh, 36C. Uh, apparently weighs 1.2 pounds per breast. Look at that. So I found this fascinating because it's got uh, you know probably 10 different weights throughout here and all the different bra sizes, and uh, it's fascinating information. I decided to share this with my wife. You'd be surprised how well that does not go over. Um, so <laughs> would we be? Anyway, would we? Maybe not. So, and there's a whole. Seriously, 20% of the comments all came from this. We're only going to cherry pick a couple here. Martin Gray comes in to call it "Who's Boobs in the DC Universe," which is he wins the the yellow dot for that. That's just awesome. Uh, Keith G. Baker comes back and says, "This is one of the greatest and most educational comments of any show ever on this network. You're doing God's work, Siskoid." And then he comes back and corrects himself and goes, "The greatest comment." <laughs> Uh, Chris Lewis comes back, and I like this. This will be the last one here. It says, uh, FYI, the size of surgical breast implants can be measured either by volume or by weight. The largest of all breast implants shall hereforth be known as the Wally Woods. Because <laughs> Wally Wood, of course, is responsible for making Power Girl's chest so large. Uh, just uh, basically almost on a bet. So, All right. Then we hear from our buddy Paul Hicks. Uh, Paul Hicks writes in to go, uh, not all the way through the episode yet, but if only there was some sort of Doom Patrol podcast you could have mentioned after the Crazy Jane entry. Well, Paul, uh, I'm sorry there's not. So there you go. That's all there is to it. Paul, of course, is the host of the DC OCD podcast in something called Waiting for Doom. I don't know what that is. Then we Dr. Heard Doom from- podcast, isn't it? Uh, it would probably be better if it was, but anyway, <laughs> we love you, Paul, and we love the Doom Patrol, and we love your podcast. And if we don't say that, Wilf will kill us. So, uh, then we hear from our buddy Derek Crab, who does the Fan Holes podcast and the History of Comics on Film on YouTube. And we talked about Justice League Detroit, and I just I was I was rattling off a lot of stuff like I normally do, and I said no one liked Justice League Detroit at the time, and then he did Doctor <laughs> he did this graphic of Doctor Evil going at the time. Right. Come on. Seriously, people love Justice League Detroit. Be nice. <laughs> what I love about what I love about Derek is like when he's online, his opinion he can be very cutting online, and then you meet him and he's the most gentle, soft spoken person in the world. I just it's, it's very funny to me. That is absolutely true. You're right. Yeah, there's a different difference in the personality there. Yeah, huh. Interesting. Oh. Kind of like Frank, actually, a little bit. <laughs> They've met and been in the same room now that I think about it. So then we hear from Robert Markham, who uh, he's the one who pointed out all the discrepancies in uh, Who's Who for us, the, the digital version of Comicsology. So thank you for that. He comes back to say at this point, uh, when he wrote this comment, issues 7 through 12 were out, and they all look uh, A-OK. So there were no, no problems there. Good to know. Uh, Rick G says, Mr. Bones is credited on some sites as being created by Roy and Dan Thomas, but considering he was a rather openly ripped off homage to the 1940 standards comics character, The Black Terror, maybe they thought it was better not to mention it. Um, the costume is certainly almost exactly the same. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the power set is different and the whole fact that he's a bad guy, not a good guy, and the, the, the Black Terror looked human as opposed to Mr. Bones. So I don't know if you could say it's a ripoff, but certainly the costume is is, is spot on. I mean, you got to think about it. It's Roy Thomas. Yeah, and right. it looks I mean, like a character from the 1940s. Yeah, it's not a coincidence. Eats and breathes those things. Exactly. Uh, then we heard from our buddy Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, Legion of Super Bloggers, and the single number one creeper fan in the world. Uh, which doesn't sound like a compliment now that I think about it. I'd say it out loud. Anyway, he talks about uh, Alia Rands, of course, which is light, the Lightning Lass we talked about last issue. Uh, he say, who he thinks she's the hottest Legionnaire. And he says, yes, the art is crazy good by Steve Lytle. I have to say that the six-foot height has been a consistent number in all the Who's Who runs. So I have 
have to think that it's real. Oh, because there was a big debate about whether she should really be that tall with that weight and all that stuff. So I have to think it's real. She is one of my favorite legionnaires. She's powerful and strong, and she has a character growth over her career. Her relationship with Vi, meaning Shriek and Violet, was cutting edge for the time. So good. Absolutely, Ange. I agree. Uh, he also says regarding Dove, another fave. Too bad we never found out what happened to her in Armageddon 2000 number two since it was never printed. And then he adds again in all caps, it was never printed. <laughs> I, just picture, I picture Ange like, you know, with his fists and he's like, you know, yelling at the sky. And then you like you cut to the earth and you hear like that echo. Never printed, printed, printed. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like with uh, Sue Dibney, right? Same thing. <laughs> so then he comes in about Power Girl. He goes, her secret origin issue podcast um i'm sorry her secret origins uh podcast episode uh, was my first guest in on any podcast ever thanks ryan well this isn't one of my favorite of power girls costume it isn't my least favorite so angel's least favorite power girl costume is the white headbandy oh, yeah. diamond boob window atlantean thing that is so rough and dude you are absolutely right yes justice league europe after the what, what rob might call the omelet costume or whatever you called it last time <laughs> the yellow the gold and silver one, creamsicle, which, which often looks yellow and white. Uh, anyway, yeah, she got this costume. It was white, and she's got like a, a, a headband. And yes, the the boob win- the boob window is now a diamond, and it's blue. It's like red, white, and blue. It looks a little patriotic, but it is a terrible costume. Uh, it's uh, it's got awful. That's got to be the worst power girl costume. Absolutely. They were from our buddy Sean Walsh. He talks about Northwind. We had so much fun talking about Northwind last time. He goes, Northwind did return after his Infinity Inc. days, primarily utilized by Jeff Johns in the JSA. You can probably guess this won't be a happy road. Uh, Northwind and his people evolved into more bird-like beings, inspired, I would have to say, by Hawkman's uh, looking in Kingdom Come some years prior. And by the way, John, you have to be right, because Jeff Johns was so married to the Kingdom Come continuity at that point. Absolutely. All right, back to what Sean says. He goes, uh, Northwind, uh, he'd align himself with Black Adam in Kondok, making him more or less a villain. And he got his wings ripped off and fled into obscurity once more for his evolutionary efforts. Uh, yeah, not a, not a happy end for Northwind. Oh, man. He says, regarding Copperhead again, I believe the inset image of him putting the squeeze on Batman, which, yes, is not a thing Copperhead snakes do to their prey, is a bit of an homage to the cover of his first appearance. Or maybe he's just hugging him. He's hugging him and turned to villainy because Batman beat him up over a hug. <laughs> you know, I hadn't read that comment before you read it just now. Uh, that's really freaking funny. Um Sorry, I have to compose myself. He comes back to talk about Mr. Nebula and Scarlet Skier by Tom Artis. He says, uh, Tom Artis is an underrated artist for the time. And we had uh, that we uh, we had a DC and Marvel. I think he drew some of the She-Hulk comics between Burns Run and that 90s title. He goes, looking at Nebula's design here, I'm reminded of how his outfit is also a shout out to Owatu the Watcher. And FYI, Mr. Nebula, a star of DC's recent young animal imprint, sort of. Interesting. I know they used Manga Khan. I did not realize they used Mr. Nebula. Must have been in the Milk Wars, I guess. Yeah, cool. Then we heard from our buddy Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Bailey Tube Podcast Network, also from Crisis Crisis and many more. Uh, last time we talked about Gangbuster, and I specifically shouted out to Mike saying, Mike, tell me if I'm wrong about Gangbuster's history. Because I was pretty sure they had wanted Gangbuster to be 
uh, Guardian. So Mike comes in and says, according to Jerry the Extraordinary Ordway, and if I'm remembering this correctly, he wanted to do a new version of the Guardian, but editorial was against it, so they created Gangbuster instead. Again, and if I'm remembering the interview correctly, there was this feeling in editorial that they wanted to go away from the Kirby stuff, but then the editors changed, and in 1988, they reintroduced the Guardian, the Newsboy Legion, Cadmus, and all of that. I've said it before, but I love Jose Delgado as a character. He was a fascinating study of what happens when you have the convictions of Superman, but not the abilities. And the fact that he was a school teacher and that his tech was also store-bought also made him compelling. Very cool. Thanks for the info, Don't Mike. I appreciate that. Then he says, well, I mean that, I generally do. And then he goes on to talk about Glorious Godfrey. He says, Glorious Godfrey is now more relevant than ever, considering how someone getting a crowd of people to do his bidding just by whipping them into a frenzy is shockingly realistic. Frankly, I think Legends as a concept has more meaning now than it did in 1986. You are not wrong there, sir. Uh, then he talks about Power Girl. He like now Rob bagged on this costume, the the gold and silver one last issue. I said how much I loved it. Mike says Power Girl. I like this costume. Maybe I still have a thing for the '80s fashion. That turtleneck look did something for me. But I will echo Shag's statement that the fact that she was completely covered up made her sexier than showing off her cleavage. It's not like I have a moral objection to her original looks, but there's something about this costume that just gets me. Thank you, Mike. I do think that costume looks absolutely awesome. Then we heard from our buddy Joe Cabrera. Joe says, Shag doesn't think anyone ever heard of Solomon Grundy past the 1940s. Because yeah, I said that last episode. I said I didn't think, besides the character from the comics, I didn't think anyone knew the nursery rhyme anymore. And he says, actually, uh, any kid who watched Sesame Street in the 1960s or 70s knows him from this following bit. That's where I heard of him first. And he shares a link to the Sesame Street bit where they do the Solomon Grundy rhyme. And I, dude, had no idea. Again, I only ever knew the character. So, all right. All right, Dad. Uh, Yes. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm waiting. You know what I'm waiting for. <laughs> I'm. You notice I skipped highlighting that part. Uh, David S. Gutierrez says uh, regarding Hawkman, like Mr. Matthews, I was a big fan of this era of Hawkman. So what if it didn't mesh with continuity? The stories were solid, and the cleanup forced on the character and our Paul. I'm looking at you. Only made things worse and dumber. And yes, Rob, a space cop with wing is ridiculous and probably shouldn't be taken too seriously. It's not like they gave him long hair, a beard, and a hook hand. Uh, I, I have no idea what Dave's David's point is. I didn't say that Hawk. I didn't say that uh, that Aquaman was unrealistic or was more realistic. I was just saying, Hawk, dinging Hawkman for for not being realistic the other way around. It just seems so. so I don't know. I, I think he's just dinging me because that's just what David does out of reflex. Well, no, he's saying Hawkman from the 90s is a better take than Aquaman in the 90s, so I think is what he's saying. I think that's uh, damning with faint praise, but okay. <laughs> now, what Rob skipped over earlier is the thing that Rob doesn't want to say, but I have a reason for it, uh, which is David A. Scudero's is, of course, the Poddell executive producer and the owner and the operator of the Katana Banana Stand. The reason I bring this up, Rob, is because just last month, yes. and I have photographic evidence, I hung out with David in yes. Los Angeles. We had a great time, and he wore his Katana Banana shirt yes. to the gathering, so he wore it proudly. So it was very exciting for me, and I feel like I'm justified in saying it over and over and over over and over and over and over. So. You made him participate in his own degradation. So, well done. 
that we heard from our buddy Keith G. Baker, which is the sports and comics over on Twitter, and uh, a good buddy of ours. He writes, Power Girl's original Super Squad costume was by far her best. No boob window, just a simple, cool costume. Now, I don't mind the boob window, because boobs, but it is a distant second to the original. The yellow costume is hideous and should have never been tried, like the most costumes designed around the same time. Ugh, Keith, I love you like a brother, buddy, but I gotta disagree. Now, okay, I agree that Power Girl's first costume, with sort of the scoop neck, looked fantastic. Yes, it looks very good. Uh, but I, I, I think the other costume works. It's a good alternative. So, then we heard from our buddy Jeff R., who is the, who's our keeper of egregious emissions. Uh, we only have another, what, nine issues to go till finally he'll unleash the egregious emissions from the loose leaf edition. I can't wait. He says, Reverb, we talked quite a bit about last time, was also the code name of the evil Cisco. This is talking about the Flash TV show. Evil Cisco on the Earth with the evil versions. Not sure of whether they called it Earth 3 or not, uh, if that was it. So, yes, uh, that's right. Reverb did have a TV appearance. So, all right, way to go. Uh, Alan W. Wright from the Robin Hood Bold Outlaw website. He says, uh, fun show, guys, but something's bugging me. Rob doesn't like Northwind and thinks his powers are inadequate. So what are his powers? One, increased speed and stamina. Two, ability to travel in a way people can only usually travel in machines. Three, ability to communicate with a specific segment of the animal kingdom. He's a half-human child of two worlds with family ties to the leadership of the non-human world. Oh, and he lost an appendage for a time. Rob, Northwind is Aquaman of the skies. (laughs) I have to admit, that one left a mark. (laughs) I like David's response. You're banned from Pod Dylan. He's always banning people left and right. He has no power to ban anybody. He's got to say that. But that was great. That was when when Alan Wright wrote that. Left that, I just lost it laughing so hard. That's brilliant, brilliant observation. Well done, sir. And you're not wrong. So they were from buddy Lewis. He goes, as someone who is a fetish for female bodybuilders, I would say Power Girl's stats, meaning specifically her weight, because we talked a lot about that last episode. Uh, her stats are reasonable, even if a bit modest, as some shorter ladies exceed 150 pounds, and the contemporary Power Girl hits 160. So there we go. We we talked about her weight last time, which was I think 100. 147 pounds or something like that and we were debating whether it was realistic or not my wife thought it was and lewis also agrees that that's actually a realistic weight for her <laughs> okay very cool her from our buddy aaron head moss from the headcast network who does shows like task force x podcast and starman the manhunter adventure hour and many more aaron says just waiting for the episode where rob has had enough of shag and dc shenanigans and just starts wasting people the earth prime vigilante <laughs> I really hope that doesn't happen. I have I have to raise my kids. Anyway, he says he loves Bolt mainly because he showed up and fought the best Starman. Yes, Will Payton. Oh, awesome! Uh, I love Bolt. Such a great character. Then we heard from our buddy Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, who does shows such as the JLU cast and the Superman Movie Minute. He says, I believe Rose Rummel, who we talked about last episode because she was taking over as the copy editor, because we were like, you know, is she up to the Brenda Pope standard? He says, I believe Rose Rummel became Rose Rummel Yuri, wife of Who's Who and back issue editor Michael Yuri. Dude, I had no idea. That's crazy. Okay. So now if you know, uh, if we ever need to do something with this who's who, we can uh, we can we got her to lean on. She can prove it for us. <laughs> Yeah, because that's going to happen. Uh, then he, he made a comment about the conglomerate, which I just had to highlight because not many people did. He says the conglomerate, man, these guys were a bit ahead of the curve with the leather jacket team look, weren't they? The 90s Avengers owe them a royalty check. <laughs> I love it. So does Rogue, by the way. Uh, then he says about Power Girl. Let's look at this costume of Power Girl. The ja- He goes um, – 
He considers this Power Girl costume the Jazzercise outfit of Black Canary and Firestorm. He, he's looking at all three of those costumes, and he goes, yes, Shag apparently likes the blousy shoulder pad look. Sure, Power Girl's blousiness is a bit more in her turtleneck only, but evidently our Floridian friend has a fashion sense that is just dying to burst out. I sense hammer pants are also on the table. Uh, very funny, Chris. Uh, I do like that, and I think I had a pair of hammer pants, actually, back in the 80s. If that oh counts my god, anything. what? I wouldn't kill to see that. Uh, he's regarding <laughs> Snapper Carr. Snapper's greatest moment in comics? Probably. The one time he's actually cool. Heck, I even riffed on the century in an upcoming letter. I'm sure you guys are about to eviscerate me for. Can't wait. It, it, can't be as, it can't be as good as the letter in today's one, but I'm sure it's good. Well, it's, I mean, it's a friend of ours that's in there. You know, Scott Gardner's got a letter in here somewhere, too. So, I mean, just uh, that's going to be so much fun to cover those letters. I can't wait. And you're right. We're, even though it's probably perfectly fine, we're going to rip you to shreds. So, absolutely. Uh, then we heard from our buddy Diablo Frank, the infamous Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network, the Marvel Superheroes Podcast, the Spawnometer Podcast, and so much more. Now, as you know, Frank writes these really, 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 really long dissertations. And this issue, or this episode, he really didn't let us down, folks. He wrote... Oh, my gosh. Uh, 1,300 words, believe it or not. Okay. And <laughs> three pages of content Frank wrote. And Rob wants me to just cover one comment. So I- I'm going to do more than that, but we'll start with that one comment. And he specifically wanted to talk about Floro. You remember the Floronic man he, from New Guardians? Frank's comment on Floro is Floro. <laughs> That's all he wrote. It's the perfect, you know, sort of condescending, you know, comment on Floro. I love it. It's absolutely brilliant, Frank. Now, it would have been fun just to read that and move on, but I can't do that to you, buddy. You got too much other good stuff in here. Uh, uh, he mentioned, uh, I'm spoil, not going to go too far. Spoil sport, Matthews. I know. That's, that's, that was my nickname growing up, actually. So uh, Matt Wagner had more fun with this copperhead than the character deserved, which I think you're probably right about, Frank. That is not wrong. Then we talk about Hawkman. This is interesting. He goes, I would argue that as with Hawkworld, George Perez's Ground Zero relaunch of Wonder Woman failed to develop a new sustaining mythos for the amazing Amazon. The book only sold below Marvel's cancellation line of 1,200 copies. I'm sorry, uh, 120,000 copies when Perez was drawing her, and far worse when he wasn't. He saved the book from the dire 60,000 sales of the previous volume, but it was in no way a win comparable to Byrne, Miller, or other post-crisis successes. Every criticism leveled by Shag against the Hawkworld reboot could be applied to Perez's Wonder Woman. Wow. I know Frank has a problem with uh, Perez's book, but I guess I didn't realize how, how the numbers didn't you know bear out her success. Interesting. Uh, and then he says, because uh, we talked about um, Wildcat, you know, the second Wildcat. He goes, cat ladies are hacky and making them Latinas as even more so. But I kind of dug Yolanda Montez as she is better deserved than the Diablo Island Massacre. Or she deserved better, sorry, than the Diablo Island Massacre where she was killed. That's in the Eclipso series. Uh, because I recall at one point it was heavily theorized that she was mutated into the new Titans Pantha, who also, uh, who was also executed cavalierly in a super massacre that she was also too good for. Yeah, yeah I seem to remember that with Pantha. When Pantha showed up in the new Titans, we all kind of thought that was her, uh, Wildcat. But yeah, unfortunately, it turned out not to be, which is a shame. I'm going to get a comment from Guy Cassay, or excuse me, Gus Cassay, uh, who said, I need to chip into the Power Girl costume debate. I really like this iteration, and in my mind, second only to the classic white outfit, with or without boob window, and it's miles ahead of the awful, awful Princess of Atlantis contraption that followed it. Yeah, nobody really liked that one. 
I think we're all right there with you, buddy. So, uh, except for the people that don't like the yellow and white costume, which are just fools, uh, like Rob. Then we heard from Jeff Tischer. He says, Adam Strange, my all-time top favorite character. I don't know why, but there's just something about a resourceful, smart guy with all kinds of cool gadgets on a fantastic world. And I've always loved that he's not all doom and gloom, which is probably why this is not my favorite iteration of the character. I'm so glad when he was redeemed by Mark Wade in the pages of JLA. You know, Jeff, I think we all were. It uh, really was happy to put this behind us. He talks about Northwind. He says, when I was a kid, my only exposure to the character was Who's Who in Crisis. I thought he was cool. Then I saw this outfit. And then I actually read some Infinity Inc. Never mind. (laughs) You know, Northwind got an amazing amount of comments. None of them charitable, though. (laughs) No, not really. Uh, let's see. Then he goes on. Um, he goes, oh, uh, oh, 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 right. Okay. So, so this is, this is cool. So Jeff Tischer, he did this amazing piece of artwork guys where he, he did the justice league roster. He listed out every single character from every permutation of the justice league that's ever existed. He'd been working on this piece for a year. Okay, and um, he gave a link. You can go out there. You can find it again on the comments for uh, Who's Who number six. Now, be warned, this file's like I don't know, forty-two megs or something. It's massive, and he says, "Be warned, it's not a small file. It's huge and may not be accessible on phones or other mobile devices. If it were printed, it would be over thirty-four feet long." <laughs> Seriously, did you look at this graphic? It's unbelievable. It's yeah, it's uh, impressive. It's really, really cool. He really digs in deep. I mean, it's it's way in the minutia in a great way. I just go out to our website. Again, do it on a PC that's on a hard wire. Don't do it over wireless. Don't do it on a mobile device. You will not thank us for that. And then download the image and take a look at it. It's really super cool. And he's working on another one. I don't think I'm allowed to say what he's working on at this point. But he's working on another one, which is going to be super cool as well. So, all right. Uh, who's next, Rob? Next up is uh, Brian Linton. He says, I am overjoyed at the news that Who's Who is on Comicology. I only ever owned one or two issues of the original series, so it will be great to finally get a hold of the rest of them. It will also give you an excuse to re-listen to all of the early episodes of the Who's Who podcast. Did I mention that I'm a furloughed government employee with some extra time on his hands? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We're, we're very glad, Brian, that that all wrapped up actually pretty shortly after the last episode. So, yes, glad you're back to work. Absolutely. Then we heard from our buddy Damian Whiter, who last episode in the feedback, we found out that uh, Damian had listened to every episode of the Who's Who podcast in just under a month. So I think that technically categorized him as clinically insane. That, so. is, that is not advisable. Uh, he says, <laughs> I was happy to hear Rob inspired uh, was inspired to create Iron Man's arch nemesis based on my spelling mistake. When they inevitably <laughs> use him on the telly, can you remember me when they turned up at your house with barrels full of cash? <laughs> no promises. Uh, then on Alia Rands, he says, in the Tomorrow's Legion Outpost collection, there's a vintage Keith Giffen interview. And I found this really fascinating. Um, uh, where in, I'm sorry. I'm Shag found this interesting. Uh, it was a Keith Giffen interview where he states that Alia has the most traditionally sexy body type, but she leans away from it. It's interesting to see the juxtaposition of Dream Girl, which, of course, as we all know, is like supposed to be super sexy. Uh, it's interesting to see the just juxtaposition of Dream Girl and Light Lass in her first run and realize he draws a bustier alia, but you don't notice it because of her body language and how she dresses. That is really fascinating. I mean, that's Keith Giffen really digging in deep into characterization and body language and everything else and uh, how people act and live. And that's, I wow, so thoughtful. I just think that's really cool. 
Then he goes on about the conglomerate. He goes, I really enjoyed their appearance in Justice League Quarterly, but this is a rather bland image. I don't have much too much to add except Maxi Man first appeared in the Joe Phillips drawn run of Mr. Miracle. He was very hot in that series. By the way, don't Google Joe Phillips and hot guys in a business context. Not safe for work. And let me tell you, that is absolutely true. <laughs> Joe Phillips is a great artist, but Joe likes to have some fun with his drawings, and you could get fired from work for that. So don't do that. Then he talks about Hawkman. He goes, Nolan did uh, does a great forced perspective shot. You can tell he was trained by Joe Kubert to have the audacity to attempt this. I love Hawkworld, but my love was for Shaira. She always felt like the cornerstone of Ostrander series, and Katar was there as a supporting character. Dude, you're not wrong. I, I said it last episode that Shaira from the Hawkworld series is the single best iteration of Hawkgirl, and the, um, the, the J- Justice League animated series – owes everything to that version of Hawkgirl, or Hawkwoman, I should say. Uh, she's absolutely, uh, that, that version come to life in comics. It's a snapper car. Talking of cool guys here comes Ty Templeton. Best entry in the issue. Who would have thought that snapper car could have been such a star? It makes you wonder how great a Mark Wade and uh, Ty Templeton post-blasters snapper car in space series would have been. Maybe it could have single-handedly snapped comics out of the 90s crash. <laughs> I don't know if that would have happened, but you know, hey, I like that. I like your uh, uh, your Optimism, positive attitude. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Uh, Joe X says uh, Snapper again on Snapper. Snapper's on Young Justice season three. He even references JLA seventy seven, where he leads the Joker to the secret sanctuary. So yeah, that's cool. I like they make him relive his his worst shame. You know, Young Justice season three. There are some serious deep cuts in there. They introduced this doctor, uh, a scientist who I didn't even reckon. I think. Uh, Dr. Fetus or something like that. I don't remember the guy's name now. But someone reached out to me and said, hey, Shag, can you tell me about this character? I'm like, no. Who the hell is that? I had to look at it. It's actually a guy from Firestorm. But he was such a minor character, I completely forgot him. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they're really doing some deep cuts with with, uh, Young Justice Season 3 over on the DC Universe app. Check it out. Then I had mentioned in the last episode that I remembered the early promotional shots for Infinity Inc. included a female cat character who I thought might be like an early version of Wildcat that came much later. Uh, he, Joe X, uh, clarifies for me, it was Lagara who was the claw, was in the early version, uh, was the early version of Yolanda that was in the promo shots for Infinity Inc. So there we go. I do remember something correctly. Nice. Then we heard from Mike Kramer again, who uh, we read his iTunes review earlier. He goes, it's amazing. I have had these who's who pages in binders since they came out in 1990. And in all that time, I never noticed that the background colors for the cover and the actual Hawkman page were different from each other. And no, I'm not colorblind. You know, I don't remember if I said it on the air last time or not, Rob. But yeah, you pointed out the Hawkman entry was like red on the cover and blue on the entry or whatever like that. I didn't catch that either. I was like, when you said that, I'm like, what? And I'm sitting there flipping back and forth going, what the hell? I had no idea. So great catch by you. And uh, wow, hard to believe. He goes, uh, in the whatever happened to category, my question would be whatever happened to Jack Small and Petey the demon that turns into a dog from the Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus run of Dr. Fate. Well, uh, actually, technically, it's not the Keith Giffen run because uh, both Jack Small and Petey were introduced in the ongoing series, which was Demetrius and Sean McManus. But either way, the, they ended up – actually, I can tell you where they ended up. At the end of the series, they ended up with Eric and Linda Strauss. Uh, when Eric and Linda were reincarnated in a new – set of bodies and Jack and Petey go live with them. 
So that's where they ended up, and hopefully they lived happily ever after. We don't know for sure. We never saw them again. Hmm. Uh, Chris Lewis uh, writes in, he says, Acknowledging Rob's antipathy towards the colored category borders for the pages of the Loose Leaf Edition, perhaps you should designate a standard border color for I don't don't give a crap just for him. Uh, That would be anything with a legion on the cover. I I think it would just be blank white, nothing. Um, (laughs) And he also says, uh, so Rob just picked a legionnaire, snapper car, and copperhead as his three favorite entries in this issue. My only question is, at exactly what point was he replaced by an evil robot duplicate? Um, before we move on, we should thank Chris. Uh, he, he we should recognize he's also affiliated with the Storium Arc podcast. So oh, check sorry that out. About that. Yeah, uh, our, okay. our pal Michelle Fife, uh, who does Blood Strike for Image Comics, GI Joe for IDW, and of course his own creator-owned Copra book. He says, "Top shelf banter, gentlemen." I'm with Shag, Ugh, Michelle, on liking Ostrander's <laughs> Hawkworld series, the story, not the art. But I'm also with Rob's take, there we go, on realism in a story about space cops who come in and attack shadow creatures. Hilarious. But remember that when going over the height-weight discrepancies. Where does one draw the line? <laughs> we, we are very uh, inconsistent with what gets under our skin. I'm not, I'm not so much bothered that it's unrealistic as I just wonder why they bother to make the weight so everybody's underweight. It's never over. They always do everybody young. I'm just kind of curious as to why that always is. But, but yes, I agree. If, if, if uh, you know, we can have Hawkman and Hawkgirl fighting space creature, uh, shadow creatures in space, then we can have uh, a guy who is six foot two, weigh 200 pounds. That's fine. Well, hey, here you go. I have an answer for you. Or actually, to be specific, Chris Lewis has an answer for you. He goes, weight equals mass times gravity, right? Well, if the nth metal negates gravity, then it must reduce a character's weight. I think we may have just solved the long-standing who's who. There's no way a seven-foot, two-inch character can weigh 78 pounds conundrum. The answer is nth metal. Uh, sorry, eh, eh, hard to say. Nth metal underpants. Quite easily done. You can just pop the Nobel Prize in the mail. Thanks. <laughs> Brilliant, Chris. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, then we heard from our buddy Adam Ackerman, who goes by Centaurin. He goes, hey, it appears you forgot to mention that Jason Woodrow appears in the 1997 film Batman and Robin. No, wait, never mind. You probably did the right thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> our pal Martin Gray from the Toon Dangers for a Girl blog says, who's late? Me. Thanks for another great show. As ever, Rob proves that size matter. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Oh, wow. Well done, Martin. Uh, he also writes, Hawkman, ugh, take away the most famous visual signifier of a classic hero and replace them with long box lids. I don't care what a cop would have. These are comics. Go for fabulous. You know what? I, I don't remember highlighting that. Did you highlight that for me to read, Rob? <laughs> I, t- <laughs> I mean, I love I'm, Martin. I, I don't think I wrote I don't think I was going to read that. I may have. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, then he goes, Wildcat 2 was far ahead of her time, being not just a female stepping into a hero identity established by a man, but a Latino replacing an old white guy. Diverse before anyone used the word that way. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, about the same time, interestingly enough, they did the same thing with Dr. Midnight. Uh, it was an African, African-American woman stepping into the role of Dr. Midnight, taking over for an old white guy as well. Then we heard from Mike Hodar. Uh, he goes, after three years of listening, I finally, I'm finally up to date, mainly because every time I'm listening to an episode in the car, the kids make me rewind the theme song so they can sing along to it again and again and again. I've had that earworm in my head for three years now. I hope you appreciate the sacrifices I'm making here. 
Oh my gosh, Mike, that is amazing. Thank you so much for listening to the show that way. I'm thrilled that the kids love the song. I'm sure Daniel Cynical Adams and Ashton Burge from the Bad Mamma Jammas would be thrilled to know their song as being heard by these kids. And then I feel really guilty for all the discussion about boobs. So um, sorry about that, kids. I don't feel guilty at all because I didn't do any of it. <laughs> uh, yes, you did. Last episode, you were part of that discussion. You were the instigator, uh, I think, of some of that discussion. So anyway, uh, Mike goes on to say, another memory resurfaces, as they tend to do when I'm listening, that Mr. Nebula and Scarlet Skier also appeared in an issue of the Will Payton Starman series. In it, Starman meets up with Monel or Valor, as he was known then, in a hilarious issue written by Peter David. Any issue that can use the phrase, your mother lusts for my throbbing studliness as a cause for two superheroes to fight is got to be worth a recommendation. <laughs> it's awesome, Mike. Thank you so very much. Now, folks, we are going to take a second uh, step out of the feedback to go to the Zoom's Who corner of the show, specifically Zoom Yukonori's addendum to the definitive directory of the DC Universe. Now, we've been covering these Zoom entries for years, these classic Who's Who entries. We absolutely love them. We do need to tell you, folks, over on Redbubble, go out to Redbubble right now. You can order some of Zoom's Who's Who stuff on coffee mugs. You can get his Zoom's Who mug, which I have, which has uh, all of these character entries he's done, like in one big sort of... Uh, 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 what do you call it? Jam shot, kind of like Perez used to do on the covers. Then you get uh, there's two. Did you know there's two different Lady Cop mugs that are out there right I, now? No, I didn't. I have the one. I didn't know there was a second. There's a second one. You should check it out. Then he's got a TRS 80s Whiz Kids mug, and he's got a. <laughs> I'm wearing the one. T-shirt as we're talking. <laughs> and he's got the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show mug. Those are absolutely awesome. All right, Rob, why don't you walk us through Zoom's entry for this episode? Uh, yes, he provided us with a custom double-page spread of Superman's Fortress of Solitude. Of course, as we all know, the original Who's Who series was a series intended to give a listing to the Fortress, but then by that point, uh, John the crisis happened, and John Byrne took over, and they decided to to get rid of it. So Zoom made one himself, and uh, it's his artwork, also based on the work of Neil Adams and Ross Andrew. And most of the information is taken from the Treasury comic, which I covered on mm-hmm. Treasury Cast with Michael Bailey, Superman and his incredible Fortress of Solitude. So it has this. It's good. It's great schematic. It shows you the front door. It shows, of course, the giant key. It gives the various floors. It even shows you where the cosmic arc is, which was that thing Superman designed to take basically just his friends uh, to another planet in case Earth ever blew up. Yeah, thanks very much for that. Um, <laughs> I believe uh, Felicity Huffman's daughter and Lori Loughlin's daughter are on that ship. And it's got hey. the Phantom Zone room, current, uh, ro- robot storage, the super weapons room, the supermobile garage, the Krypton Memorial, the disintegration pit. I love that Superman has a disintegration pit when he needs to get rid of his enemies. Um, <laughs> It's it, it, I, there's a great detail where it mentions that there are no stairs in the Fortress of Solitude because of course Superman lives there. He can just fly from oh, floor to floor. He okay. doesn't. He, you know, basically. Now I don't know what he does if Lois visits, but that's a whole other thing entirely. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, just, it is. Yeah, it's just beautiful. It, it just looks spot on, and you totally would buy that this is what the listing would have looked like had they done it. And of course, I wish they had because it's it. It makes me weep with joy. It's so beautiful. Well, it's going to be in our gallery. First. Yes. But one of the things I love that Zoom did, when it, his touch that he added here, besides you, you get the yellow dots. It's, it's By the way, we should say it's the classic Who's Who style, yes. not the Who's style. No. It's a two-page spread, so you've got the yellow dots. But he also took the time to draw in like a fake fold. You can yes. see the fake fold yes. mark where yeah, the, right. like, the comic yeah. had been folded. <laughs> Just brilliant, Zoom. Now, the giant dinosaur? 
did both Superman and Batman have giant dinosaurs in they their caves? They did. You see there's like, a giant uh, orange dinosaur in his trophy room in the, the treasury. How crazy. How crazy. Oh, jeez. Oh, Bronze Age Superman wackiness. Um, not my favorite. World. Oh, somehow it's okay for Batman to have a dinosaur, but Superman? That's crazy. That was the line. That was the line, yeah. I do love the giant key. The Superman like would pick up and fly over there and twist to unlock it, which is super yes. cool. But yeah, and Zoom just designed the hell out of this thing, guys. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, so good. Oh, thank you for another great the, the, one, Zoom. I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but the best compliment we can give Zoom is that when I post his Aquaman-related entries on the Aquaman Shrine Twitter feed, people are like, did I miss this issue? Where is this one from? And they don't. Right. Because it looks totally real. Well, you know, I, I think I told you, I printed out the Superman Earth 1 and the uh, Wonder Woman Earth 1 entries, and I have them with my issues. Um, I, they, they perfect size, everything. Yep. It just, it's perfect. They're perfect. Yep. yep. Absolutely gorgeous. Thank you, Zoom, for another fantastic entry. All right, folks, now we're going to get into the point where we uh, thank all of you who shared our show on your social media timeline, specifically Facebook and Twitter. Uh, It sounds like a big, long list of names, and that's exactly what it is, but we want to take a second to recognize each one of the folks that helped promote the show. Thank you so much. And every time you share on social media, again, it helps raise the profile of the show and more people find the show, and we keep hearing from new people every month. So keep it up, folks. You're growing this who's who community. We really, really appreciate it. So our thanks to Alexander Osias. Between the Pages, the Birds of Prey podcast, Bowling Green State University Batman Conference, which I think is next month, actually, uh, isn't it? Uh, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics, Comics in the Golden Age, Cosmic Cat Comics. That's the comic shop I used to work at, actually. Uh, Damian uh, Whiter, David A. Gutierrez, EM Graphics on eBay, Into the Weird, Jack Rocha, Jeffrey Brown, Jude DeLuca. Justice Trek 2019, Kirby Cast, Con L, Kyle Benning, Lee Asef, Legion Bloggers, Liz Ann Oswalt, Long Box of Darkness, Martin Gray, Matthias McBride, Maxa Romero, and his handles The Mirror Factory and its Plastic Man, Michael Bailey, Paul Kean, Darren Rousseau-Lillen, and their handles Rad Adventures and Xenozoic Xenophiles, read more, com- read more Comics, Richard Field, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ryan Daly, Scott X, Siskoid, Slangword Scott, St. Dylan of Lange, Stort- Storm Chaser, Straight Outta Godfrey Podcast, Superbound, Tim Price, and Willie Yarborough. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you guys again so much for helping getting the word out there about the show. It really, really helps. Now, just a reminder, we are going to post some of the images from this issue of Who's Who out on our website. Rob, what's that website? Uh, Fireandwaterpodcast.com. Yep, go over to the Shows button and uh, look for Who's Who. So that is issue number seven. Next issue, we're doing number eight. Very exciting. Cover with Lobo. Also inside is the Phantom Stranger. Hooray! And Kent Shakespeare. Huh? <laughs> it's almost like we're reliving the promo we did for this series, you know? <laughs> anyway, that's going to do it, folks. Thank you so much. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter with Fire Water Podcast Network. You can find Rob as Aquaman Shrine. You can find me as Firestorm Fan. Uh, use our hashtag PoundFWPodcast. And we want to hear from you. We want your comments. Please leave the comments on the website. And until next time, who's next? Next. <laughs> Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? 
Soldier Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. My plan worked beautifully. Now that Aquaboob and his friends are moving right into my trap. Hold it, Aqualad. I'll reconnoiter the canyons alone. Wait here till I send for you. Okay, Aquaman.